it's not an extremely deadly virus. It's not the Black Death. And look what it's doing to the world. So now just try to think what will be the implications of a much bigger uh, problem like climate change. Also, conceptually, it shows that, um, and here I completely agree with you, Ratko, that it shows you that you can change things on a massive scale. That, um, and again, you can stop all flights. You can lock down entire countries. You can actually do that. And uh, life goes on in some way. And this, I would say, may make us more open to radical ideas about how to deal also with climate change. Oh, life goes on, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't life go on during lockdowns? That's Yuval Noah Harari. He is the one of the lead uh, advisors to Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. And uh, it, I don't want to take a victory lap because I, I called this because so many people called it. It's like, who cares? But uh, if you guys recall, I described in the summer of 2020 well, what I, uh, what's known as the ratchet effect. And that is where tyranny basically only goes in one direction in, until you stop it. Uh, they, they ratchet it and then it just gets tighter and tighter. So you accept things that you probably would not. And, uh, and that's, you do it under a, you know, a propagandistic push, uh, fear, fear, propaganda agenda. And by the time you look back a year or two later, you realize, you know, really what has transpired and how far you've fallen. And I think that, well, obviously I despise that guy, uh, Harari, he's not wrong. And I think that's the thing that I, I wanted to point out to you guys more than anything is that he's not wrong. You know, if you're, if you're willing to accept the ending of all domestic flights for a time, because you're concerned about COVID, uh, if you're willing to shut down your business, if you're willing to take a mandated product from a corporation, uh, if you're willing to mask your child for over a year, many places, two, two plus years, some people are still doing it to their kids to this very day, which is hard to wrap your head around, but it's true. If you're willing to do all of that over something that's relatively benign, well then, if you have a fear pretense that anthropogenic climate change is ultimately a, a existential threat to humanity, well then what aren't you willing to accept? Right? That's the question. What aren't you willing to accept? And my, my answer all along has been none of it. I'm not willing to accept any of it, but he's not wrong in that many, many people have now proven that they are willing to accept a lot. And I think that is the, that is what we have to be vigilant about is that they're going to try this again. Lujan in New Mexico tried it again with the, uh, the open carry ban and, and concealed carry ban. Uh, they're going to do it with climate change. It's just, it's just a matter of when. So now, you know, that the guy who's one of the lead, if not the lead advisor to Klaus Schwab in the world economic forum is already thinking it out loud. That's how brazen they are. He's willing to have this conversation that's going to be put out publicly where he's going to talk about, well, 
you know, what lessons did we learn? Well, we learned that people are willing to put up with an immense amount of tyranny if they're afraid. So let's make them afraid. Let's see how afraid they can get. And let's see how much power we can aggregate. And hopefully, after the past three years, you have already realized this game, this gambit, and you will reject it wholeheartedly. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It's time to make up my own mind and decide if I think it's time to break the law. What are we going to do about it? An overwhelming number of people recognize that we are in danger. They fear for their fear for the own lives, lives. Of their children, fighting for the future of life on Earth. No government, no major political party has ever significantly addressed the issue. They haven't been listening to us, the climate activists. Now, I'm not asking for anyone to break the law. There are so many lawful ways to get involved. Raise your voice. Post a poster, sign a petition, a banner, go on a march, lobby your local MP. However, for me, myself, when significant and obvious danger, so, but I've got to raise my voice. If you're an activist that's already made a decision that yes, you're going to break the law, so long as no one is hurt and there's no lasting environmental damage, then you'll have my support. And personally, I think I've reached a point where I now consider it the ethically responsible thing to do. The ethically responsible thing to do is to break the law. Well, if the law is unjust, I tend to agree, but that's not exactly what he's talking about. This is Chris Packham. He's a wildlife TV presenter and conservationist with 624,000 followers over on X. And I think you see where I'm going with this. It is, to put it mildly, concerning that you have influencers of this level, of this caliber, uh, that are essentially advocating for criminality amongst the climate zealots, those that, that perceive carbon emissions, the things that those little green guys down beneath me uh, consume <laughs> to, to produce oxygen, mind you, for us all to live, they, they believe that criminality is now justified. And I think that you know, my, my fears about this have, I've been very open about them, that I, I, I perceive the potential for world wars or at least, at least wars. Uh, but I haven't really talked about in detail, the, you know, the other aspects that could, we could see. I mean, you've already seen, uh, you know, climate activists that are willing to destroy, uh, you know, priceless works of art, glue their hands to the pavement, stop traffic, get on freeways and stop traffic. Uh, They've burnt buildings, they've done, I mean, there's real eco-terrorism as well. And I think that with influencers of this level now basically saying, you know, 
as long as you don't hurt anybody, uh, go ahead and break the law that you're going to see a lot more of it in the not too distant future. So, um, my, my opinion of it is that this is really kind of a, a red guard, uh, you know, communist or Marxist revolution that we're witnessing, uh, under the pretenses of climate change and also an anti-camp cap capitalism bent. So that's where the Marxism is more obviously, uh, able to be viewed, but you can also see it in <laughs> on many, many levels, unfortunately. Uh, so I think that the, like, I just can't even believe this. I can't even believe that you have people that are saying stuff like this. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, to point out the obvious hypocrisy or the double standards of terms of service on social media, if anyone were to come out and say, you should break the law when it comes to protesting against wars or protesting against the COVID lockdown era or man mandates, well, you would almost certainly be deplatformed or deboosted or deranked. This guy, not so much. And I think that tells you everything you need to know that, you know, his advocacy is in favor of the agenda of the elites and, you know, World Economic Forum, United Nations, the agenda 21, agenda 2030, uh, folks like th this, this is what they want to see. Like, I think that's, that's the primary thing I want to get across to any younger, you know, audience that's watching right now, just consider, consider, could you possibly be part of the rebellion? If your college professor supports it, your TV influencer supports it, your president supports it, your political class broadly supports it. The United Nations supports it. The world economic forum supports it. Oh, and Exxon Mobil supports it. The military industrial complex supports it. Every advertisement you see supports it. Are you part of a rebellion? Think about it for a while. Are you, are you rebelling against the powers that be, or are you a pawn in their game? I think the answer is obvious. If you're willing to look at it, which unfortunately most people are not willing, but it's so transparently true you are doing the bidding of those that rule over you already. It couldn't be more obvious. You just have to wake up to the obvious truth of it. Agriculture contributes about 33% of all the emissions of the world, uh, depending a little bit on how you count it, but it's anywhere from 26 to 33. And we can't get to net zero. We don't get this job done unless agriculture is front and center as part of the solution. But with a growing... So if you believe that he's correct, that agriculture is responsible for 33% of emissions and we can't get to net zero unless we address agriculture, what does that tell you? It tells you that you're going to starve. You can't, you can't innovate your way out of this problem because they don't want to innovate out of this problem. They want to crush agriculture <laughs> the thing that seven plus billion people rely on to live so dangerous Growing population on the planet we just crossed the threshold of eight billion fellow citizens around the world 
just crossed that in this last year. Emissions from the food system alone are projected to cause another half a degree of warming by mid-century on the current course that we are today. A two degree future could result in an additional 600 million people not getting enough to eat. And you just- the, Incredible that they would frame this in a way that if you don't go along with their totalitarian plans, then you'll starve. No, 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 if you go along with their plans, you will starve. This is John Kerry, by the way, sometime over the past year, maybe even be more recent than that, uh, talking, as usual, about climate change. Just can't continue to both warm the planet while also expecting to feed it. Where is the logic in that? A half a degree change in temperature, and they, they will have you believe that you're not going to be able to, to feed the people on Earth. A half a degree. That's what he just said. So we have the innovation necessary. We have the, the totalitarian control necessary to prevent this half a degree of increase in temperature, assuming you buy their premise, which I do not. But you don't have the technological or totalitarian control to innovate your way through this relatively minor increase in the temperature of Earth. Okay, makes sense. Doesn't work. So we have to reduce emissions from the food system to keep the 1.5 degrees alive. Why do we have to keep 1.5 degrees alive? Because scientists, as a basis of physics and mathematics, not ideology and politics or party labels or anything else, as a matter of physics and mathematics and some biology and chemistry have told us these are the consequences, and we already see it happening. And almost everything they've predicted for 30 plus years now is coming true, but the problem is it's coming true faster and bigger than was in fact predicted. It's just not true. <laughs> and it's so frustrating that they talk about this as if scientists, as if that's a monolith, believe this, which isn't true. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of scientists that completely, fiercely, 180 degrees differently view this issue. But the thing that you need to keep in mind is that the vast majority, unfortunately, of scientific research is funded through the state at this junction. And if it's not funded through the state, it's funded through corporations which re receive subsidies from the state. So they have an a tremendous incentive to only produce findings that benefit the state's agenda. It's just so obviously the case that that's what's happening here. You have so much of the research that happens in academia, almost all of it, is funded through state grants, through governmental grants and subsidies and things of that nature. So. What, what's, is there a mystery as to why they all conclude in this fashion? Why it is only the handful of dissident scientists that come down on the other side of this thing? And to his assertion that almost all of their predictions over the past 30 years have come true, but the problem is, is that they're just, they're happening faster uh, than they predicted. Lies. That's not true. You can go back through, I don't have the time for it, but you can go back through and you can look at their predictions and you can see they got a lot wrong.
provably, repeatedly. So, no, I'm not going to listen to your predictions and I'm not going to listen to your state-funded uh, and state-pushed you know, propaganda when it comes to this issue. I will believe independent scientists that are doing this research on their own that aren't receiving funding from the government, which has an agenda, which they have already enumerated through the United Nations with Agenda 2030. That's not a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy that has happened and they have been very open about it. And that is where they're headed. They are funding scientists to assert to you, to foist upon you this belief this faith, because it's not science. It is a faith that a half a degree of warming results in starvation for million, hundreds of millions of people on Earth. Whereas, if you are to remove nitrogen from the fertilizer and you know start to take, uh, take, the state takes over some of these farms and things of that nature, as if that's not going to create food shortages that ultimately starve some people on earth. It's just inversion. It's projection. And obviously, it's not to your benefit. Please, please, please wake up. And now we hear from one of our favorites, Miss Hacinda Ardern, former PM of New Zealand, who is now speaking at the United Nations, basically trying to clean up her record. Uh, but I ain't going to forget. This week, we launched an initiative alongside companies and nonprofits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must, as leaders, address. Sadly, I think it's easy to dismiss this problem as one in the margins. I can certainly understand the desire to leave it to someone else. As leaders, we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal, but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? The weapons may be different, but the goals of those who perpetuate them is often the same, to cause chaos and reduce the ability of others to defend themselves to disband communities, to collapse the collective strength of countries who work together. But we have an opportunity here to ensure that these particular weapons of war do not become an established part of warfare. In these times, I'm acutely aware of how easy it is to feel disheartened. We are facing many battles on many fronts, but there is cause for optimism because for every new weapon we face, there is a new tool to overcome it. For every attempt to push the world into chaos, 
is a collective conviction to bring us back to order. We have the means. We just need the collective will. This lady is just such a nightmare of a human being. So uh, for those that aren't familiar with Ardern, she is uh, she has stepped down finally, thank God. Uh, but she has immediately been foisted once again into positions of power, once again lecturing to us, the free people of the world, that uh, you know, mis and dis disinformation have to be addressed. We just need the collective will to address it. We just need the collective will to turn over all of our liberties and all of our ability to to speak openly and honestly. We have to turn that over to the state. Oh, shocking! Shocking that that's the conclusion she comes to. Because these are weapons of war, mis and disinformation, free speech, weapons of war. Do you understand the inversion? Do you understand the Orwellian approach that this woman takes? That it's just pure projection and inversion. They are the ones guilty of propagating mis and disinformation. Egregious, life-ruining mis and disinformation. But she believes that if we just had the collective will to give the state full authority to decide what must be banned, well then we can prevail. No, Hacinda, I reject your offer and I counter it with prison. You should be prosecuted for what you've done to the people of New Zealand and you should be laughed off the stage and removed from polite society for all time being or for all time remaining because you have proven yourself to be a tyrant of the highest order. Contrary to your kind visage, you are a absolute totalitarian dictator style person. And, and that's what's crazy about it is that there's this real soft veneer to, and we'll get into her, her male counterpart in a second. There's this new soft veneer to really tyrannical instincts amongst the political class. It's, it's a real, like, it's a very interesting rebranding that I think people need to be paying attention to. Gavin Newsom is also good at it. They, they stand up there and they talk about freedom. They talk, they use the things that we all pretty much universally used to agree upon that freedom matters, that your liberty matters. But then they, they reframe it in a way that the only way your liberty can exist is if you give it up. <laughs> That's really what they're talking about. Newsom has been trying to ban guns in California forever because you have to have the liberty to live, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Well, you have to give up your gun so that everyone can live because if everyone can't live, then you have no liberty as if that is part of liberty. No, no, no. You have to have the ability to defend yourself, but you can see the reframing. So if you're a simpleton, you'll go, oh, that sounds good. Same with this. Well, if there's if there's mis and disinformation out there about the the origin story behind the war in Ukraine, how are we to to propagandize the American people or the Canadian voters or the uh, New Zealanders into allowing our government to print and send billions and billions of dollars to this money pit of despair? Well, we can't, so we have to address that. But the reason we're doing it is to defend the liberty of the Ukrainian people. 
You know, you reframe it that way and it makes sense. Same with the, the entire censorship thing. They don't use the word censorship. They don't. But that's what it is. It is state-sponsored dictating of terms of service of private businesses on what you're allowed to say and what you're allowed to talk about. Now, they just say, well, it's lies. We're just going after lies. Well, that's wrong. There are many examples of truthful, truthful allegations that were banned and shadow banned and accounts that were banned, including some of the most prestigious academics and uh, you know, medical professionals on earth. McCullough, Robert Malone, list goes on and on. People that were banned from almost all social media during the, the height of the pandemic. Does it matter? Does it matter that what they actually were banning people for was the truth? Well, it should matter. It should matter more than anything. But see, the real principle here is that you can't know the truth in real time. So you have to allow for open dialogue. That's the whole point of free speech is that we don't know the truth in real time almost ever. So we have to be able to debate it so that we can come to a conclusion that people actually feel as if they've been heard. They've actually been able to present counter arguments. And then at that point, we might come to a consensus. If the consensus is foisted upon 8 billion people on earth, there is no consensus. And anyone who's awake realizes it. They recognize that there is no fucking truth to be found in this process. It is assertions from many people with conflicts of interest, to put it mildly, that want a narrative to stick. And that's what they wanted with COVID. Was it correct? No, it wasn't. That's what they want with the war in Ukraine. Was it correct? No, it isn't. And no, it wasn't. And no, it never was. And they don't want people to be able to voice opposite viewpoints. They don't want us to be able to counter their propaganda push. That's all this is. There is no mis and disinformation. There is discussion that's happening that like, if, if they want to say that there's a thing such as mis and disinformation, well then they have to, they have to reflect on the accuracy of their prior push to ban people because you have to prove that it was wrong and knowingly wrong. Because that's really what they're saying. If it's a weapon of war, that means it's state-sponsored to a large extent. That's that's what she's asserting. That's the whole, you know, Russia collusion, Russia propaganda, Russia stole our elections. That, that whole narrative from back in the day, right? That was what they were saying. Is that, well, Vladimir Putin bought $100,000 worth of Facebook ads and that swung the election in 2016. That was what they said. As fucking silly, stupid, crazy as that sounds, that is actually what they said. So, okay. There's the mis and disinformation claim. Now, prove what the ads he brought he bought were they wrong? I probably, I don't know. I haven't looked into it. But you've now used that example which almost certainly had no impact, but you've used it to justify censoring me, a non-state sponsored entity. And everybody that's listening to this right now, that all has to function under the same terms of service, which are nonsense. Because you're saying, we have to know the truth in real time. As if that's fucking possible with a novel virus. One that's emerging. But we have to know. And you have to only talk about the, the fucking truth about it in real time. Impossible. Do you understand that? It's not possible to know 
with certainty what is true with something that's novel in real time. And if it is possible, well, then it isn't novel. And you know the origin. So maybe you ought to own up to that. I don't like these people. All right, let's bring in Trudeau. The Oh, sorry. I, the point I was trying to make is that they, there's this real soft veneer that's being laid over these totalitarian instincts. They, 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 they do a great job of representing real tyrannical worldviews. Some of the worst ideas in human history, which we've all unfortunately got to see the byproducts of throughout the 1900s. How many people had to die under their misguided beliefs that, you know, free speech, open dialogue, debate is dangerous to a free society as opposed to being the fucking foundation of it? How many people had to die? Tens and tens of millions. And we're going through this again. And the way they're doing it, they're, they're repackaging it with technocratic, neoliberal, seemingly civilized, seemingly intelligent spokesholes, propagandists. Keeping in mind, all of the people I've mentioned, Trudeau, Newsom, Ardern, all World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders. Not a coincidence. Sorry, it's not. Speaking of our favorite Young Global Leader, I say with complete disdain and sarcasm, Justin Trudeau. We are looking very carefully at how we can ensure that Russia itself is paying for the devastation they're causing in Ukraine. We've announced today a working group we'll look to create to see if things like Russian central bank assets, which total two or three hundred billion dollars in Europe and in the United States primarily, could be set to actually support Ukraine in this fight and Stolen. indeed uh, help over the long term to restore uh, the prosperity and peace for the people of Ukraine. Do you know what he's describing there? I hope you're smart enough to decipher it. He is claiming that they are looking closely, aka they're trying to find a legal way to rob the Russian people because it's their money. It's the government, but it's really their money. So under the pretense of Vladimir Putin being a war criminal and blah, 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 and sure, he's not a good guy, but this isn't really the point or the angle I want to take with this because I don't really care about that particular angle of the debate. What I do care about is that you know, they, they like to talk a lot about this, uh, this liberal world order and the, this, this order. They say it all the time. Like the, we have to maintain this, this order. The order is predicated on the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency of the world. And for those that don't understand it at all, I'm not going to go to the, like, the bare bones of it, but like just to give you kind of a framework as to why it works at all is that there's basically a network effect. There's so much adoption of the U.S. dollar globally and so many contracts that have been established in the U.S. dollar that people just kind of like keep going along with it. 
because it maintains its purchasing power better than their local currency. That's That's been basically the, the strength of it. That's the main reason for adoption is just because it's utilized by so many people. It's accepted by so many people. So people start to do business in it. And then there's also coercion and militaristic intervention and all sorts of things. But that's the main reason is that it is the better option that they have when it comes to global trade. So they, they go along with it. The reason this is such a profound statement by Trudeau and the reason that everybody listening right now needs to really digest and process what this entails, what this means, is that the nations that are have been going along with it, but just doing so basically out of convenience, not a, out of anything beyond that, what do you think they're going to do when they see that because of this border dispute, which is really what it was, but which has turned into a terrible war, what do you think they're going to do when they see that, okay, the powers that be, the World Bank, the IMF, the ECB, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury of the United States, the Canadian government and their central bank, they're going to find a way to steal hundreds of billions of dollars from the assets that the Russian central bank has deposited with foreign central banks. They are going to migrate away from that system very, very fast. You understand that, right? And if they do that, what does that mean? It means that the adoption rate of the US dollar diminishes, which means that the demand for the US dollar diminishes, which means that the price, the value of the US dollar in terms of trade decreases rapidly. You understand, correct? Okay. Just making sure we're all on the same page. So this kind visage, this veneer of respectability, what does it, what does it actually amount to? It's, it's a mask to thievery, to a complete abdication of their role as being the reputable, trustworthy financial dealers on earth. And as soon as you lose that reputation, which it is rapidly being lost, well, then the entire game falls apart and your life savings, dear listener, it also falls apart. So don't laugh it off. Don't look at it like, oh, you know, tyrants are going to tyrant. No, this matters to you. This matters to all of us. And it really matters to the global economy too, because that, that dislocation, that, that amount of contracts that the 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 amount of you know notes and loans that have to turn over into new currencies i mean this is a massive dislocation of capital maybe the biggest in, I, actually it is the biggest it will be the biggest in world history because we've never had so many people on earth we've never had an you know a, a global economy of this caliber not even close really uh it's going to be cataclysmic and they are they are expediting that process which if you go down the more conspiratorial route Maybe the intention, maybe that's the angle. Maybe that's really what the great reset is all about is that they are trying to bring about a new financial order. And I think that's what they're doing. Food for thought. Canadians know this is a question of right or wrong. Canadians know that yes, it is incredibly hard for Ukraine to continue to stand against a Russian aggression. And let's be honest, 
It's hard for the democracies around the world who are there to support their citizens, who are investing for the future, who are challenged with a challenging economy around the world to continue to step up as Canada has with close to $9 billion in aid for Ukraine. But we will because the cost on Canadians, on our lives, on our world will be so much greater if Putin wins this war that we will and have to stand every single day until Ukraine wins this war. Canadians. Uh, that's the most gusto I've ever seen Justin Trudeau deliver any speech. And I just want you guys to consider why. Why? Why is this? I mean, it's it's an obvious on its face inversion of reality. There is there is no possible worldview that I can wrap my head around as to why which jumpsuit wearing criminal rules over the eastern portion of Ukraine will dictate whether or not the rest of us survive, whether our way of lives can can continue. Like what what where's the rationale? Like it doesn't make any sense. It's just pure propaganda. But why does he care so much? Why does Joe Biden care so much? Why do so many in the GOP? Why does Lindsey Graham? Why did John McCain? Why do, why do all these people care so much? It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you get into the conspiracy realm. It really doesn't. Like it's, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around unless you go off of corporate news and you start to actually dig into what's going on in Ukraine. Why do they care this much? Because they didn't care that much about basically any other conflict that I can think of, except for the war on terror, which was, as we now know, just total lies. So what is it? Well, here's, a, here's just a, a, a thought experiment for you. <laughs> Food for thought. I don't know this to be the case, but it's, it's a thought that I had because Vladimir Zelensky yesterday, or two days ago, rather, he came out and he said that he wants Marina Abramovich, the spirit cooker, to be made the ambassador to Ukraine. And a lot of people took that as like, see, they're all Satanists. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's that simple. I mean, granted, that's still in the conspiracy realm. But uh, for those that don't know, you got you to gotta look into that story. I can't talk about it and keep this up. So you're going to have to figure out who Marina Abramovich is and, and the spirit cooking, but just, you know, the Podestas, the Clintons, that whole thing. You can probably guess uh, where that rabbit hole leads. My, my read of it is actually different, is that perhaps Zelensky, knowing that the counteroffensive has failed in Ukraine, that they have zero chance of taking back the eastern portion of Ukraine, Ukraine much less Crimea which has been his position for a very long time now that this war doesn't end until Russia completely leaves all, all of Ukraine. It's a fine thought, just not based in reality because they have it completely entrenched. They have completely reinforced their positions and there's just no chance of that happening at this point. So unless, unless you have NATO come in. Um, so he's once again, hat in hand, he has come back to DC. I think he spoke, he spoke in New York as well at the United Nations, of course. Uh, and he's out there hat in hand. Give me money. Give me all the weapons that I need. 
Give me long-range missiles. Give me F-16s. Give me everything. Give me everything I want. I, my read, is that it doesn't make any sense that he would want Abramovich to be the ambassador. It's, it's that he's blackmailing them. That he's saying, hey, you guys forget. But I know who you are. And I know your secrets. And I know where the proverbial bodies are buried. That's my read of it. Is that he's saying, hey, you, you, you promised me. And this is true, by the way. They did promise him. When, uh, what's his name? Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson goes over there and he, like, because there was a, a peace negotiation that had been agreed to in principle between the Ukrainians and the Russians in the first month of the war. Like, I think it was being discussed prior to even the invasion happening. But regardless, they had the terms, the parameters that were basically agreeable on both sides. And the primary ask, as always, access to Crimea, no addition into NATO. And Boris Johnson goes over there and he says, that ain't going to fly based off of his advice from, I don't know who it was. Uh, I forget his name, but not Clapper, the other guy. Anyways, State Department officials in the West, they, they basically use Boris Johnson as an envoy. And he gets over there and he says, look, we're going to back you full might of NATO. We're going to give you every weapon system that you need. We're going to give you all the funding that you need. You're going to get rich. The Russians are going to get nothing. You're going to have, you know, defended yourself in this glorious fashion. You will become a hero of, of, of all heroes in Ukrainian lore. You will be the man. And Zelensky, stupidly, believes him. And for a time, that's what appears to be they are offering. Full financial support. Full you know, surveillance and weapon systems and yada, yada, yada. They give him whatever he wants. And then this little pesky thing known as democracy and the people that live here start to go, hey, what the fuck? Why are you sending hundreds of billions when we are $33 trillion in debt? Why are you sending hundreds of billions to this country in a war effort that doesn't appear to be winning anyways? And then you start to get some actual pushback and some actual decrease in the financial support and the weapon systems and yada, yada, yada. And Zelensky's looking around going, oh shit, this entire bill of goods I've been sold is bunk. It's a lie. They're not going to back me to the end. NATO, NATO's never going to accept us. They're ne never going to add Ukraine into NATO. And they're also not going to arm me in a way that gives me any chance of actually winning this war. So what do I do now? Well, it's extra innings or it's uh, it's overtime and you're down. No, it's 10 seconds left in the fourth. I'm working on this analogy. 10 seconds left in the fourth quarter. You're down by six. You're on the 50 yard line. It's Hail Mary time, right? It's the only, ch it's the only thing he's got. I think that that was a Hail Mary. I really do. I think that was him saying, look, I know what happens. When you go against the West, I've seen Gaddafi, I've seen Saddam Hussein, I've seen what you tried with, uh, you know, Assad in Syria. I've seen it. I know. I'm not trying to go against you guys. I've done your bidding. I've been a good boy. But you got to do what you promised. And if you don't, I'm not the only one going down with this ship. And Abramovich, I think I'm pronouncing that right. That's, that's the Hail Mary. That's my read.
Just think about it. Food for thought. Anyways, uh, tonight, big, big news. In a couple hours from now, uh, myself and Luke Rakowski will be interviewing in studio live Carl Benjamin, Sargon of Akkad. He has been out of the media circuit for years now, and it, it looks like he's getting back into it. Obviously, he's got his Lotus Eaters uh, project over in the UK, and I am super excited about it. I think you guys are going to enjoy it a lot. You can find that over at We Are Change on YouTube and Rumble. Obviously, the uncensored version will be on Rumble. Uh, the first hour, I believe, will be on YouTube. We Are Change, 8 o'clock tonight. Enjoy that. Before I bring them in, I got to show you this. This is the NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, telling you the exact same thing I've been saying for the past year as Destiny and Vosh lied to you. Let's hear what he has to say. See if I was wrong. President Putin declared in the autumn of 2021, and he actually sent a, a draft treaty that he wanted NATO to sign to promise no more NATO enlargement. That was what, what he sent us. And that was, that, that was a precondition for not invade uh, uh, Ukraine. Of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. He wanted us to sign a promise never to enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure in, in all allies that have joined NATO since 1997, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and Eastern Europe. We should remove NATO uh, from, from that part of, uh, of our alliance introducing some kind of E and B, or second-class membership. We rejected that. So he went to war to prevent uh, NATO, uh, more NATO close to his borders. He has, he, he has got the exact opposite. He has got more NATO presence in the eastern part of the alliance, and he has also uh, 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 seen that Finland has already joined the alliance, and Sweden will soon be a full member. This is, this is good for uh, the Nordic countries, it's good for Finland and Sweden, and it's also good for NATO, and it demonstrates that uh, uh, when President Putin invaded a European country uh, to prevent uh, more NATO, he's getting the exact opposite. Yep, there you have it. Straight from the horse's mouth. Had a NATO told you. <clears throat> this is not just Russian propaganda, as Vosh repeatedly told me I was spreading, or as Destiny said. No, 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 no. This is actually the truth. This is actually what Putin said. This, his, his request was actually completely reasonable that you have to remove... He didn't say you have to remove them from NATO. He said you have to have an A and B categorization for NATO nations, and you have to remove your military installations from the most eastern members of NATO. Crazy requests? Would would America allow for Russia to have military installations within a couple hundred or a couple thousand miles or a hundred miles of their border? Absolutely fucking not. There's not a chance that that would be permissible. So his request was to be treated the same. You can't do that to us. So what happened? Well, as Jen's, uh, Jen's is telling you the truth which I've been telling you for a year, but apparently until he says it, it's not true, but whatever. It's still the truth, still has been the truth, will be the truth, is the truth, that that was his request. That was his demand. And Jens proudly sits up there and he says, eh, we didn't do what he asked. We laughed him off. And what's the consequences of that? Well, from his worldview, it's that there's more members added to NATO, Russia's been weakened, NATO has been strengthened. This is all to our benefit. That's his worldview. 
What has actually happened? Hundreds of thousands of otherwise would have been alive people aren't alive. They're dead. But these sick fucks don't care. They don't care at all because it's only about angling for additional power because they can't permit there to be a secondary power on earth at all. It is full global hegemony or nuclear war. That is their worldview. They're sick in the head. They don't give a fuck about us. They don't care about the Ukrainian people as we've all been had our, our heartstrings pulled on. They don't care. It's us that actually care. When I say I don't want to, to escalate and have a reason for Russia to fear for its survival, so they start to do stuff like this, which as a consequence results in hundreds of thousands of innocent people dying and millions of people being displaced and millions of more migrants into Europe and to the rest of the world. All of this was foreseeable. All of this was provoked knowingly. Do they care? They don't care. Do you understand? They don't care about the consequences. They don't care about the dead. They don't care about the Ukrainian people, much less Ukraine itself. They don't care about any of this. You understand that? Could it be more obvious? They go, well, he got the exact opposite. NATO's never been stronger. We have additional members. Finland, Sweden, we're adding them all. Victory for us. What about the dead, Jens? Do you care? No. No, they don't. So when people accuse me of you know, spreading Russian propaganda. Yeah, it gets under my skin. It gets under my skin that what I've been advocating for to prevent this war, to end this war, to find peace has been framed as Russian propaganda the entire time. When the truth is that this is all about the liberal world order propaganda. That's really what this is about, is that it's as simple as Putin invaded People died, Putin bad, that's it. You can't talk about the lead up. You can't talk about the provocations. You can't talk about any of the, the global perspective of this, what this actually uh, amounts to, why it came about. Who's, who's culpable? Who has blood on their hands? Does Putin? Absolutely. Terrible. But does Jens, does Biden, does the entire lineage of presidents in my lifetime have blood on their hands for this? Yes, absolutely. Does NATO? Absolutely. You aren't the good guys. You don't get to get sit up there and say, he doesn't even mention it. Doesn't even mention the human cost. The ca catastrophic loss of life. Not to mention the injured. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's incalculable. They don't care at all. So don't allow them to have the moral high ground when they try and shame you into... into Oh, you're just, you know, you're a mouthpiece for Putin or some nonsense. Bull fucking shit. You're a mouthpiece for the fucking New World Order. That's the truth. All right. Enjoy the rest of the uh, interview with, uh, with my guys, Stefan Lavera and Daniel Prince. You'll enjoy it. I'm out. Today I'm joined by Stefan Lavera and Daniel Prince. Stefan currently resides in Dubai or the UAE, I think, and... Uh, was originally from Australia. Daniel is currently residing in France. I believe he is originally from the UK. So when I have an opportunity like that, I like to get a global perspective on the economic circumstances to see, are we dealing with 
this in some sort of unique fashion in the United States, or is this a global phenomenon? For those that are global in nature, what lessons can we take away from that? And uh, I think this is an interesting discussion. Both of these guys are Bitcoiners. So for the Bitcoiners out there, you'll enjoy this, of course. I tried not to focus entirely on that throughout. I feel as if uh, the broadest audience possible, um, it, it's more appealing if we can just talk on the on the macro level. And then, you know, we'll throw in some Bitcoin here and there. Think of it as a funnel. Don't get mad at me, okay? Uh, this episode is going to be brought to you sponsor-free. I do this periodically just because I want to say my sincere thanks to you, the audience, for supporting me. Uh, as always, you can support me if you want to go and subscribe over on X, aka Twitter, or if you want to subscribe uh, through libertylockdown.locals.com. But uh, I, I did want to do a plug I've never done before, and that's to my friends over at the Libertarian Party. Uh, there's a link down below if any of you would like to sign up. If you're sick of the du duopoly politics, even if you're um, you know, not a lifetime libertarian like myself, I would encourage you guys to sign up just because it doesn't cost hardly anything, and it's really helpful to the party, and it's really helpful to a third-party movement even if you end up ultimately not voting for the libertarian candidate, that's your prerogative. Um, there's no obligation, of course, but I think that the more people are signed up as members to the libertarian party, the more of a threat it is to both of the establishment sides of the aisle to let them know, we're not really happy about how the trajectory of things. We're not really thrilled about how things are going. The 33 trillion in debt, yeah, not a real fucking fan of that, okay? So, um, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna let, let our displeasure be known, and you can do that down below. Without further ado, enjoy my interview with Stefan Levera and Daniel Prince. Enjoy. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, and I am joined today by two just savages, Bitcoin entrepreneurs. You know, the guys. The I'm putting, to, I'm putting together a, a team... Uh, I'm I'm getting the ring going. I'm gonna just keep slotting them in there until I have. I don't know what it's called. You know what I'm talking about, though. <laughs> uh, Stefan Levera, Daniel Prince. What's going What's going on, gentlemen? Hey, Clint. Thank you for inviting us. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of your work. I love your uh, what you're doing about speaking out about liberty as a fellow libertarian. Obviously, uh, appreciate yeah. uh, more voices that are you know speaking <laughs> speaking like you are. Well, thank you, uh, Daniel Prince. Welcome in. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me back. And a big shout out to your number one fan out there that uh, is turning into your uh, I don't recruiter, know, head of admin, <laughs> <laughs> Jethro. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's he's uh, he's constantly uh, giving me you know show ideas. I appreciate it though, because you know I don't mm -hmm. I don't know everybody that's out here doing this, and um, you know because he he is fans of all of us, he's able to tell us like, ah, no, dude, I'm telling you, this is gonna be this is gonna be the the one that has to have it. I'm like, all right, all right. I, you know, I'll take your word for it. I'm, I'm always open to advice. I don't know. I don't and I've know. seen clips of your recent uh, show with, with Saifedean, uh, and I'm sure your, your listeners are getting a lot from, from that as well. Oh yeah, definitely, man. I, I got a lot from that. I mean, that, that's the coolest thing about doing this show is that, uh, you know, I get to learn along with my audience and, um, you know, I'm sure I'll learn today and I learn every day. It's, it's just uh, an, an amazing part of the journey. Do you guys feel similarly about, you know, the path you're on that like just being oh, surrounded yeah. by this community has been the most educational thing that could have probably happened to any of us? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me in Bitcoin, there's just always new things going on, always new development, always new things to learn. Um, and it really does feel like a fire hose, right? The proverbial drinking from the fire hose aspect, which, uh, you know, even for me, 10 years in is uh, you still you still feel that. Yeah. Daniel, same. It, uh, the most intellectually stimulating past seven or eight years of my whole life. Like, you know, falling down the rip, the Bitcoin rabbit hole um, and everything that comes with that, you know, with freedom, with self-sovereignty, with, you know, separating education from state, separating money from state, uh, learning about Austrian economics. There's so much. There's so much. And yeah, like you guys, I, I wake up every day and I can't wait to start learning again, which is our as human beings that's our natural default state right that that is how we should be every single day waking up ready to learn ready to face challenges to solve problems head on as they come at us uh so yeah i'm here for it and uh you know looking forward to the discussion today wherever this may take us exactly yeah well and i i think what's what's kind of novel or interesting about that is yeah, as you said that is kind of our our like standard operating procedure like that's how we're programmed from jump street but then it at some point it tends to get deprogrammed out of us where where learning becomes uh you know a chore or painful or or um unenjoyable at least and and i think that's that's been the greatest part about you know my adult life is which is not a not a good thing to say because it's such a condemnation of public schooling but um you know just to have you know, refound that passion for exploring the world and exploring my own mind. And uh, it's it's tragic that so many kids feel as if they can't do that. I, I didn't give an opportunity for Stefan to introduce himself to my audience. Uh, I've had Daniel Prince on before, but uh, Stefan, go ahead and tell my audience real quick, you know, who you are, what you're about. Sure. Yeah. So I'm mostly known for my self-titled podcast, Stefan Levera podcast. I host a lot of people about Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and so that's the main thing I'm known for. I'm also head of education over at swan.com. So basically it's a place where you can buy Bitcoin, learn about Bitcoin. Uh, I also invest in Bitcoin companies as well. And on top of that, I'm often speaking at Bitcoin conferences and libertarian conferences around the world. So uh, definitely uh, focused on uh, spreading Bitcoin and libertarian libertarianism and Austrian economics uh, are definitely things that I'm, I'm doing. So kind of... Uh, you know, running in similar circles uh, to you guys. Yeah, yeah, it sounds as if, and and what fun circles they are. Um, so let's let's hop right into the deep end. Uh, you know, with the big news yesterday was that the U.S. national debt is thirty three trillion. Uh, the the pace at which it is being added to is breakneck, to put it mildly. Uh, I think it's gone from like twenty trillion to thirty three trillion in six years or something like that, which is just mind bending <laughs> it, it took it took the united states uh hundreds of years to put on one trillion and then it took <laughs> it took six years to put on 11. we're fucked uh i'll just put it bluntly we're we're in serious serious trouble as a as a nation uh at least governmentally um that does open open the door for you know competing currencies and and people will certainly be fl fl uh, fleeing to the hills and I think Bitcoin will be the hill for most or for many people, at least. Um, so I guess we'll we'll start there. Uh, yeah, the, sure. the, the, the big debate is always, 
you know, austerity, can they actually find a way to, to cut back and, and sustain this thing and kick the can, so to speak? Or is hyperinflation the, the path out? I'll start with Stevan. What do you think? Uh, I think for sure it's 95% greater chance, uh, greater than 95% chance that they are going to have to print, right? Like maybe even higher, maybe even not higher than 99%. Because as, as I'm sure you and probably many listeners know, they, it's, like a, it's like a choreographed dance at this point, right? They do this little dance of like, oh, are we going to like, you know, try to cut the spending? And actually, in reality, they never do. And of course, um, I, can't, I, I can't remember the exact name, but I think it's called the Washington Monument Effect or something like this. But the idea is when, when shutdowns occur, they'll shut down the things that are very obvious to try and make it clear to you. Oh, look, look, little citizens, we need your money. Keep paying us because otherwise these important things that you like will be shut down. They won't shut down, you know, the wars or the other things that you don't actually, <laughs> that you really want to shut down. They'll shut down the things that the people actually enjoy and it's more done out of spite. So, I, you know, for me, I think the more ease, it's, it's an easy, almost foregone conclusion. And you know what? To sort of dig into that a little bit further, it's that there are entrenched interests. There are simply too many entrenched interests to actually cut the spending. Now, obviously, from a libertarian perspective, what's the ethical answer, right? And the Fed, you know, uh, spend a lot less, you know, dramatically cut down the spending, dramatically cut the size of the state, dramatically cut the number of employees of the state. But we know that's not politically feasible, especially when there are so many people sucking at the public teat per se, whether that is directly as a public employer, whether that is uh, perhaps indirectly, whether you are maybe you're a company and your big contracts are with the government, uh, whether you are, you know, maybe you are in a family of somebody who's the breadwinner is working for the government, right? So obviously you're not going to, you know, go vote against that. So, you know, this is all these ways in which the system as it is now in America will not allow a real meaningful change. Now I know there's, you know, there's candidates out there, potentially uh, someone like Vivek or someone like that, who's making uh, statements about this. I don't know how likely that is to happen. Now, of course, that's the next year conversation right now. We're talking about just, you know, this debt, this current sure. debt ceiling aspect um but yeah well, I, overall I, I, let me sum it up as saying inflation yeah yeah i'm of the opinion the president doesn't actually make this decision uh <laughs> personally but uh daniel what do you think yeah he doesn't yeah. the people above him do the people that placed him there that they're, they're they're making the calls here and it's um everything else is just a pantomime i mean look at biden when they roll him out it's just complete and utter total pantomime and this this pantomime that we had recently, the um, the, the debt ceiling uh, negotiation, mm. right? It's absolute, complete, total nonsense that anybody gets sucked into this in on any kind of political standing. It's like, come on, guys, wake up! They dragged this news out for like a week or so. We're not going to cut it. Yeah, we uh, sorry. We're not going to cap it. Yes, we well, we are going to up it. No, we're not. And it's all the Republicans' fault, and it's all the Democrats' fault. So you get everybody arguing and pointing fingers at each other. It's just a game, and it's yeah. so absolutely infuriating because when you see it, you can't unsee it. And pantomime in in Britain is very, very popular at Christmas time, and like you know, everybody's there. He's like, oh, it's he's behind you, and it's just like it, it's they, they bring the clowns out, at, you know, at half time to uh, entertain the crowd whilst they're resetting the stage, right? That That is what is going on every single time we have one of these open debates um, on mainstream media, whereas 
behind the curtain. All of the levers are being pulled. They know who they're going to place, where they're going to place them four or five years in advance. Then they know what they're going to get out of that person, what they want that person to achieve, what levers they want that person to pull. And uh, yeah, at the moment, we're in this ridiculous situation where we've had supply chains, as we all know, during the lockdowns, uh, completely and totally destroyed you know, an intricate part of the economy. These these things were, they were working like well-oiled machines. I mean, as we know, if you let the private enterprises and free markets figure things out, you will get an incredible supply chain gone right. overnight. So what did we have? We had small to medium-sized enterprises completely destroyed, gone. So at the same time, we've got all of this money coming into the system, as you said earlier, Clint, you know, the the, the uh, the debt now is 33 trillion so you've got all of this money chasing fewer goods and services over the last two or three years because of the amount of businesses that had to close down and this is why we're seeing such a ridiculous uh hike in prices um and to stefan's point they, they're going to do exactly the same thing again they're just going to print more cash yeah it it does seem to be a foregone conclusion the the only reason, uh, you know, it always confuses me is like, if you want revolution, if you want rebellion, hyperinflation is the way to go. You know, like, <laughs> like, like you're you're really playing with fire here. But it, it's it's fascinating because the powers that be in every nation that has ever faced this this turning point, this decision point, has almost always opted to not go the austerity route and instead go the hyperinflation route. And uh, so yeah, it's quite clear to me that the entrenched interest that's that's their preferred pathway and it's it's tragic for, you know, the American people. I think what what makes this an interesting discussion and interesting debate. I mean, it's interesting anyways because it's you know, it's going to be it's going to decide kind of what the future looks like. Um but is because this is such a global phenomenon. And since uh, are you, you guys are both foreign born uh, based off accents it sounds yeah. to me. Yes. Um and the, the, there's been a ton of debate, you know, over the years now as to, you know, which, which currency is able to hold out, which fiat currency, I should say. Um, and if the U.S. dollars, you know, reserve status is, is adequate to help it weather the storm or keep it afloat while the rest of the world, uh, you know, implodes. And we printed so aggressively over the past, you know, few years that I'm not so sure anymore. So, I'm curious, um, you know, for my American audience that doesn't pay a ton of attention to, you know, European politics, things like that, uh, if either of you would like to take us down, you know, what what has the experience been abroad as well? So, look, I mean, there's obviously where where Bitcoin is here, so we want to promote Bitcoin. But at the same time, for all, you know, for all its flaws, the U.S. dollar is still the least bad of the fiat currencies. And you right. see that, and Daniel and I probably, we do a lot of traveling around in general and seeing you know bitcoin in different places uh but there's still a very strong demand for us dollar cash in other parts of the world because for them it's more stable right and i was recently in turkey and there was sort of people will sort of play games there because they were doing a big devaluation on the turkish lira which is their currency and so they had a big devaluation and so people who were you know pricing their rent uh in lira are like you know, and if you can earn money overseas, then you're loving it. But if you're priced in lira and you're only earning lira, you're you're really struggling now. So, you know, and if you look at different you know markets around the world, it's often it's it's still common today that 
if you have USD cash, you're in a decent position because they'll give you, they, they'll trade with you or they'll, you know, they'll let you buy stuff or trade at least for the local fiat currency and do something that way. So we are moving, but that said, the US dollar is sort of fading in relative dominance, right? So the, I, I agree with this idea of the multipolar world that people are talking about that, you know, it, it's it's not that the US dollar is totally gone. It still is the reserve currency for now. Of course, you know, eventually I think it will be the it will be Bitcoin, but it takes time to break down, right? And I think another common example is, you know, just looking back at communism as an example, it took six decades to fall, right? Mm. Like it, they, they can kick the can for a while. And sure. so these things don't just kind of collapse straight away. I think that's sort of, yes, it looks bad for the US government. Yes, the debt situation is really, really horrible, but they will sort of keep doing programs and they'll do whatever they can to sort of keep the system, you know, teetering along. That's how I see it. Well, I think also there's just not a, a clear fiat competitor. You know, it's like every almost almost every nation has behaved in a similarly fucking insane fashion. Uh, Daniel, what's your thoughts here? Well, I'm based here in Europe, in France, and we have um, a, a pretty unique situation here, which it has kind of crept up over the last couple of decades, but now you have the European Central Bank in charge of, well, and Christine Lagarde, who's the head of that, who was found uh, in the court of law guilty for criminal charges when she was heading the IMF. And her reward for that finding of, uh, of guilt was not to be fined, not to be sacked, not to be put in prison, but promoted to become, you know, president of the ECB. So Jesus she Christ. now, I, 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 hold on, hold on. Uh, just give my yep. American audience the backstory there. What was she charged with? Uh, what was the crime? Okay, right. So she was um, running the uh, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and she was found and charged. Well, she was charged with embezzlement of, if I get my numbers right, I think it was close to like 400 million euros of um helping funnel money into the uh, into a business aid of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, which is one of the ex-Prime um, Minister's presidents of France. And she went to court for this and faced uh, the judge. And the judge found her guilty of gross negligence, in air quotes, whatever that means, but basically guilty. And she should have been facing fines and a prison term. Neither were given. At the, at the verdict of guilty, Neither of those were given, none of those punishments. Instead, what happens is she walks out of the, that court and then finds herself as the head of the ECB. So for all of you conspiracy theorists out there, or, you know, critical thinkers, as I like to think <laughs> of you, one might come to the conclusion that perhaps some power was behind keeping her out of prison and keeping her okay in front of everybody else to get that job at the uh, at the head of the ecb where she is now in direct charge of 27 countries who use the euro and it's her monetary policy and decision making that gets funneled across those 27 nations so it's a complete and utter total clusterfuck here is yeah well, we have I, 27 nations hanging off her every word. And the idea that we're supposed to be the European Union and, you know, standardized 
things across all of the countries is complete nonsense. And, well, I, um, I, have, I have to draw this correlation real quick because uh, I was watching this uh, kind of mini documentary uh, a couple days ago, and you know, Larry Fink was responsible. He's he's the you know head of BlackRock, obviously. He was responsible for I don't know if it was like the mortgage-backed security concept, but some some variant that without it certainly would have uh, decreased the chances of there being the 0809, uh, you know, real estate bust in America <clears throat> and, and the global recession to a large extent. Um, and, you know, then he's, he's propelled from that position. He's then put in charge of the, the bailout funds during the COVID lockdowns. Like this guy is, is culpable in such a deep way for, <laughs> for what's gone wrong in high finance. And now he's the most powerful man in the world, arguably, uh, maybe, maybe even, maybe, maybe even amongst politicians, he's extraordinarily powerful because he has so many trillions and trillions of dollars under management. Lagarde sounds like a similar, uh, situation to me where not exactly a clean character, but it, that almost seems to be a prerequisite. If you want to rise to the highest levels of power is that you, you have to be corrupt. Well, if we, if we go, if we go further back, let, let's go back to, uh, Woodrow Wilson when he was president and how did he, uh, even yet to become president. He wasn't even like uh, running. Then all of a sudden he throws his hat in the ring, upsets the whole, um, no, what did they do? The other side, they threw Roosevelt's hat in the ring because he was up mm -hmm. against Taft, if I remember rightly. And I think Taft was winning. And um, all of a sudden Roosevelt gets um, in and that disarrays that kind of voting process and parties divides them. Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson gets in uh, and he was their man. He was their man to push through the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 because he was primed for that job. And yeah. when they all met on Jekyll Island in 1910 to push through the uh, the Aldrich plan, uh, you know, the the usual folk were there um, meeting in, in clandestine conditions, hashing out this plan. And in a three-year dog and pony show, propagandizing the whole of the United States, and then pushing through the Federal Reserve Act Christmas week of 1913, when half of Congress were on holiday. Like, th this is what they do, guys. This isn't freaking <laughs> no. movie stuff. Like, th this is so obvious now. All you have to do is read a few books. Read the, the, the Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. It's all in there. And that's a lot more digestible than, uh, you know, The Creature from Jekyll Island, because that's about that big. But, uh, well, pe pe people have this, this, you know, I don't know if it's recency bias, but just this incredible ability to believe that the, the chicanery has stopped. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, we, we have this debate in, a, in America uh, all the time. It's like, like, is the, you know, yeah, the FBI, you know, assassinated civil rights leaders and they uh, probably participated in, you know, human trafficking. They probably brought in drugs during the war on drugs. They probably, you know, like the list goes on and on. They're probably laying or, or labeling rather, uh, you know, American patriotic organizations as domestic terrorist fronts, even though they have no domestic terrorist involvement. Uh, but, but I'm sure they stopped, you know, like it's, it's like, it's not still happening today. Uh, and it's just it's just so detached from reality. But I, I understand to a certain extent why people struggle to deal with that reality is like that's scary as hell. We have a federal fucking police force that is out to get us like for real. And uh, and that's not that's not something that someone who believes in the American you know foundation, at least would ever believe to be a possibility. So I think a lot of people are just flat, flat out in denial. 
but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you guys about the, you know, we, we were talking about Lagarde. The, the reason we got into this discussion is because, you know, the U.S. government has, you know, spent in such a profligate fashion and, uh, and ultimately printed too. And, uh, but what, what has been the, the European uh, experience over the past 10, 15 years since the Great Recession in America? Uh, yeah, I'll take that one. Uh, Stefan's been in Australia or, or Dubai. Uh, yeah, just um, more of the same. The, it, it just seems to, everything seems to follow America. Um, and the reason being, Stefan, is because, you know, that they can't, the can't on effect, uh, you know, that, that it just the ripple effects of what goes on in the US just slowly reverberates throughout the rest of the world. Uh, so yeah, in the last 10 to 15 years, what have we seen? Rising prices across uh, everything, every sector, um, <laughs> deterioration of infrastructure, of the roads. I don't know who's going to build the roads. Well, <laughs> someone better because they're getting worse and worse <laughs> as, as every day goes by. Uh, they have the, the, they have the, the fucking printing grid. press and they still can't do the roads right? What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> The, the electrical grids, you know, we, we've got um, countries such as Germany just shooting themselves seemingly in the foot with uh, moving away from nuclear and trying to go all green and, you know, this whole embracing this whole net zero narrative. It's um, it's a mess, man. And people yeah. here, uh, we, we see it a lot because of what you just described earlier. You know, you said it's scary. It's dark. It's dark, 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 dark shit when you see and you cannot unsee like the the stuff that's been going on leading up to this point and when people come to uh you know discover bitcoin and they that's why they say you know bitcoin is hope because they see the complete opposite to that darkness right of what's what's come before and what they can see ahead uh, and maybe maybe Stefan can can riff on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean something I'll add. Like I grew up in Australia, I now live in Dubai, but certainly uh, in the times I've visited the EU over those years, it's you know I can sort of sense there's a deterioration over time as well. Like it it's sort of culturally there's you know it just seems like there's more and more regulation. It seems that more and more crazy ideas happen. And I think in fairness, this is also an interest rates thing. When the interest rates are really low crazy ideas get justified right and so you might have seen there was like a meme being shared on twitter recently there's like calvin klein um image in 2022 and it was like fat people and then the calvin klein uh, model from 2023 was actually more in shape because it's kind of like the rates have risen and you know there's a bit more need for sanity in that environment so i think as daniel was pointing out it's crazy ideologies like wokeism and you know net zero esg all these kind of crazy ideas can be more easily justified, quote unquote justified, when there's low rates. When when it seems like the money is free, they can just justify all these kinds of crazy projects, wind and solar, all these kinds of boondoggle government projects. And unfortunately, we're, we're just seeing this hollowing out of middle class. We're seeing a dumbing down, right? Like some of these countries even ban homeschooling, right? Like you, they, we're just seeing continual dumbing down uh, and, and just a lot of problems and not really any way to deal with that. And of course, you know, as Daniel was saying, I think a lot of this comes back to the Cantillon effect, right? It's a centralizing force, right? So p- for people who don't know the Cantillon effect, basically it means money is not neutral. It matters where the money comes into the economy first. So the people who get that money first 
they get a benefit at the expense of those people who get the money later. So the Cantillon effect and an inflationary fractional reserve system benefits those people who get the new money first at the cost of savers. And so what does that what impact does that have? It centralizes the government. It it creates big government. And it's happened cool. in America, it's happened in the EU, it's happening all around the world. And it's really unfortunate. And this is why it's so important to bring us back to a system where there is no uh centralized entity who gets to determine politically who gets the new credit and who gets it first and who doesn't get it who's allowed to have banking and who's not right like nigel farage is not allowed to have banking and this other person is because they go with the narrative and nigel farage was not going with the narrative right well it also centralizes the economy i mean really because it's so much of the um you know the productive capital which it's i struggle to call it capital since it's coming from the printing press but it's still you know, hits the economy and it does what it does. So, um, but the, the decision makers, you know, they, they end up trying to go to that trough and, and, uh, <laughs> and go to lunch feast upon it. So that, that, but you're right. Those projects, uh, tremendous amount of malinvestment because interest rates have been held so low for so long. And, uh, I think you're right also that the, the woke, uh, economic model, the entire ESG DEI framework, uh, only functions under basically a zero bound interest rate uh, environment. And I think what I, I think because it's so rare that I get to have on, you know, two guests and between the three of us, we basically span the entire globe, uh, you know, a third, a third, a third. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to talk about, you know, how the ESG DEI stuff has been such a global phenomenon because, you know, we, we like to believe that we don't function under a one world government. Uh, but when you when you look at this kind of cultural phenomenon of uh, zero uh, zero cl- or zero carbon and kind of this depopulation zealotry, uh, then on top of that, this once again dividing us by our immu- immutable characteristics um, with the DEI framework and this kind of victimhood hierarchy. Uh, I know I know I've had I've talked to some Australian people that say many of these things are happening even there. Uh, it's 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 hard for me to believe that this is all like, I know I talk to Tim Poole about this sometimes, and he's just convinced that this is strictly because we've all been connected thanks to the internet and, you know, the 2010s give their, thereabouts. And that certainly plays a role for sure. Um, but I just struggle to believe that these terrible ideas are strictly an internet byproduct. Um, so any, any comments from either of you? I think the internet has enabled, yeah, certainly these ideas to spread a lot, but it's also just continual degradation over time, right? I think it's just dumbing, you know, it's like the classic, you know, uh, the John Taylor Gatto dumbing us down sort of book, right? It's that people have just been dumbed down over time and they've been pushed into this sort of culture where you're not allowed to disagree. And it's a lot, it just became a lot easier to sort of keep your head down and not really say anything and just sort of go with the narrative. And I think what's happened in some ways is that there's this kind of tiny minority who's extremely loud, but they've got a lot of influence and maybe they control the right levers of power, right? They have, they have Hollywood, they have media, they have universities, they have, you know, they have um, the schooling system. They can kind of propagandize the young and get them scared about, you know, climate scamming uh, things and get them uh, into climate catastrophe sort of modes of thinking and, oh no, the world is going to blow up. This is why 
you know, you've stolen my childhood or whatever that Greta idiot says. <laughs> you know, these this is this is the sort of thing they unironically believe. Yeah, how dare you, right? And so we saw that even in Australia. There's so many climate lefties in Australia. It's absolutely insane. Like you just cannot even make the sort of as Alex Epstein or people like that would make the moral case of fossil fuels or the fossil future <laughs> argument. You right. just can't. You just get just shut, shut down. down. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Uh, Daniel, uh, similar, you know, uh, occurrence yeah. for you? I mean, to your point, like, you know, are we living under a one world government? Like, the, I think the COVID narrative is probably the the biggest red flag for, for that theory. Then, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have even given it a second thought up until that point. You know, I was just same, like, yeah, same. whatever. 100%. But, right but that for me was like whoa they're playing a freaking they're overplaying something here nothing of this can't a whole global narrative makes any sense at all and then when you saw people on twitter stitching like the news clips together you know when all of the news clips all around the world from different tv and news stations were all saying the same thing in unison you're like man like this is this is planned this is complete and utter total string pulling from you know the very top of the period and then we find out uh, a little bit later on uh, maybe 18 months into it where i think it was the one of the Cro croatian uh, members of the european parliament started beating the table over like the pfizer contract he's like you want to see the pfizer contract that our government signed Here's one page. Here's another page. And it was all redacted. Like, you know, there'd be like four or five paragraphs just blacked out. What? <laughs> Who could sign that? Like, how on earth? But the, so, signing the redacted they contract? I, I, I didn't hear about that. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. It, it was pages and pages and pages of blacked out paragraphs because I guess, I don't know, they got lazy. They, they live in the pharma republics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah man that's incredible well what, oh, what's unbelievable what, what's interesting is you know uh, there was a big news story in australia actually uh just last week that the exact same phenomenon with the exact same phrases uh where you had essentially like their intel agencies and their medical health establishments in australia similar to kind of our fbi cdc uh you know dhs uh or not excuse me uh, hhs rather like they, they were instructing social media to attack mis and disinformation. That like this, which is not a thing for any of my younger audience. We didn't fucking talk about that shit. That was not a thing. We didn't have mis and disinformation. We just had lies and truth. You know, like that. That's what it was. Uh, but now they have actually created kind of these labels so that people can feel as if they're. I don't know, in, in an in-group when they go, oh, that's misinformation. And we, it's not censorship. We're, we're just correcting the record. We're correcting the narrative. We're, we're trying to protect you from Russian propaganda or whatever. The same fucking thing was happening in Australia. I, like, there's just no, from my, from my vantage point, there's just no fucking way that that's organic, that you have the exact same phrases from the exact same institutions from different nations on the complete, you know, 180 degrees separated on the planet, and we have the same phenomenon happening. And then I'm I, undoubtedly, there's a multitude of nations in between those two that have had the exact same experience. And, and like, it's just, it's just impossible that it's organic. It's impossible.
So that's I my see take. It like it's a, it's called, it's kind of like a mass delusion, right? I think there's a few factors that contribute to it, though. I think it's that media. So obviously, as many people know, the internet changed the media's business model, and so there was no longer a role and enough profitability to have actual investigative journalists, right? So you just had this that's, kind of that's clickbait. That's a huge factor, or, you're right. Or this kind of stenographer journalism style, right? Where that, in, that journal, quote-unquote journalist is afraid of losing his or her access to the politician if they do not faithfully yep. you know, write down every little word and report it exactly unquestioningly. And so that was a big factor because that, that sort of tipped the scales very much in favor of you know, the uh, COVID scam authoritarians. And they now it was hard for resistance to form because you just you couldn't get uh, coverage. You would either get shut down. You wouldn't get on the news. You'd get your tweets banned or shut down. You'd have your account shut down. You'd get deboosted without even knowing. Right. Like, for example, I was, you know, during those you know, few years, I was like continuously posting about how much of a scam this was, why it's wrong to lock down, why it's wrong for vaccine mandates, all these things. Right. Uh, and. I think very few people were actually seeing my posts on like social media. Like it just, you know, they were just deboosting and doing whatever they could to shut down anyone who was against the narrative. And, you know, I think that was a big factor that played into it because otherwise more and more people might've been willing to hear that argument. Oh, okay. Why is lockdown wrong? Why is vaccine mandates wrong? Why is travel bans? Why are travel bans wrong? And at the same time, the population had been scared. And then that same population would then, sort of cry out to the politicians, oh, we want a lockdown, right? That was, you know, that was how they saw it, right? So a lot right. of them were just that scared, no matter what you said, it just, you couldn't get through to them. Yeah, well, it, undoubtedly that's, that's true, but it's just, it's just so, it's so crazy to witness it on a global scale and, and for it to, you know, even different cultural, you know, angles and, and viewpoints and vantage points. It's like, like to have almost everyone on the planet react in the same irrational fashion <laughs> like that's what scares me you know the most and and we were talking a little bit about the you know the anthropogenic climate or you know global warming folks and the the zero carbon emissions folks um what what scares the hell out of me is seeing these young people like the the activists the ones that that would be you know you would think the leaders of the next generation because they at least are they're spirited enough to get in the streets and do something um but instead of doing something they're destroying the world potentially <laughs> because they they're, think they're helping and this is the I, thing in australia i, I know I but that's what's the so scary they think they're all turning up to the climate scam protest basically and being like oh we want action on climate it's right. a massive thing and you're just not allowed and of course you know one kind of protest is allowed but the other kinds of protests are not allowed right of and course. that that was something we saw in many countries, in Australia, yeah. in America, Black Lives Matter for us was the the one that COVID was okay with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and like when you think back um, during that time, again, the conspiracy theories were reigning in that uh, it just so happened that a lot of these leaders at the time were from the Young Global Leaders Program at the WEF, <laughs> and then that 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 little clip went around, if you remember, of Klaus Schwab. I think he was, I think he was at Harvard University and he was on stage and basically saying, we have now uh, infiltrated uh, cabinets uh, around the world. So we have people on the inside. Uh, so we can affect change when we need to pull those levers and we can't, you know, 
Uh, quick like fact man. check. I, I believe I believe he said penetrated, penetrated, <laughs> which, <right>. which is <laughs> so, somehow even more concerning. Yeah. This is like they're saying this stuff out loud. They're not even trying to hide it, and yet the level of like just acceptance from people is what really upset me. To be honest, that you know to see the so, um. The reaction from you know normie land or uh, walking zombies whatever people that you know masked as soon as that came out and yeah i'm gonna get we live in the countryside guys like we're walking around and people are wearing a mask in the countryside like, what are you doing this is yeah. complete nuts uh, but people were so quick to jump on board and yeah this is uh three or four decades of uh you know the the ramping up the um, indoctrination systems around the world and and dumbing people down go read taylor ghetto as as stefan has said yep. it's all in there you know he's got three great books which document this and uh all of this was done by design i'm not sure if you guys are aware of how the general education board was was ever formed have you been down that rabbit hole i i believe so but go ahead and give us a uh, cliff's notes if you don't mind right okay same same keep cropping up all of the time but uh this secret meeting happened in 1903 at john d rockefeller jr's house with uh six or seven other uh invited esteemed guests to have this you know brainiac think tank um meeting of how to steer education over the next uh 100 years or so so yeah, another secret clandestine meeting whereby a um, a system is captured for the, the benefit of the few and uh, destroy the minds of the many and make them into little marching robots. Well, from 1900 to 1915, uh, you know, thereabouts, the, the technocratic era was kind of foisted upon the globe, it seems to me. And... And it had the, the byproduct, well, we have obviously had incredible innovation and we've had a, an era of, you know, decreasing in poverty uh, and and bringing more people into kind of the middle class uh, for the decade after decade. It was really incredible. Um, even with all of this innovation, including the advent of the Internet and all the, all these incredible ways that we're able to now produce additional wealth. Even in the face of that, all this incredible growth, they, they're still managing to uh, manage this into the dirt. Um, but I, I, the reason I, I brought up the, uh, the climate change you know, protest folks is I think, I think for the vast majority of them, the hearts, their hearts are in, are in, are in the right place. Um, but I, I'm, just, I'm just so disturbed because it, like it, what, it, what it's done to me as of late is that it, it makes me reflect on communist revolutions and and like how the how their minds were functioning because like as an american i just view communism as evil and to a large extent i just view communists as evil <laughs> you know i'm just being honest um but then then i see these kids that are doing it and like they're scared to death like they really are they they honest like i think the vast majority of them are a hundred percent true believers that they think that capitalism is going to result in the earth itself lighting a flame <laughs> like, which is just a, a mind-bending 
uh, you know, worldview to hold, but I think that it's sincere. And, and, and so to a certain extent, I have sympathy for them. But the reality is, is my fate is tied to these motherfuckers. Like it's, uh, I am, I am going to be at their mercy because these people vote. And as long as I function under a democratic system, which I don't prefer to be honest, but I do. So, um, I just don't know how I like how I don't at some point view these people as my actual enemy. And that's a weird position to be in because it's like I have love for these people, but I also realize that their ideas are so dangerous. They may put my life at risk. In fact, they probably will. Um, sorry. Any, any yeah, thoughts? No, I mean, absolutely. They will. And I think that's why it's important to look at the countermeasures. Obviously, Bitcoin is very important. Obviously, you know, if you're able to do the whole, you know, what's called flag theory, if you're able to have a residence or a citizenship or something in other jurisdictions, even in America, if you can go to different states, that might be useful into the states that are more freedom uh, focused. Let's say um, I think homeschooling is a, an important bulwark here because how do they do this? They get these kids when they're young and they propagandize them with climate scammer propaganda. Oh, the world's going to blow up. Oh, no, this, that, and the other. And you look at all these crazy climate predictions and basically none of them have come true in terms of the catastrophes, right? All the stuff that Al Gore says, the stuff that Greta says. Greta, I think, even deleted a tweet from like five or six years ago because it didn't come true, right? Um, <laughs> AOC famously made a comment. I think it was like 12 years from now, something, you know, so in a few yep. years' time, her credibility should be shot, but it won't be. Um, but that's the reality we're in. You have to sort of look at what are the realistic alternatives. And I think to the point we were talking about earlier, low interest rates versus high interest rates. And I think some of these ideas will simply not survive high interest rates. And here's how I'm viewing it, right? I'm seeing it as Bitcoin is a big part of the answer. And in fact, the only answer, uh, because that's the only thing that's going to bring back a kind of economic rationality. It's, a, it's like, we can think of it like it's going to impose discipline onto the world in a beneficial way, right? Like we're libertarians, we believe in private property, but that's not the same thing as being libertinists, right? That we can sure. believe in liberty and private property rights at the political level, but also believe that there's a beneficial role of discipline that we need. And that can be at a social level, a cultural level, and even an economic level. And I think that economic discipline is, for example, competition, right? As states have to compete with each other, Look at the way the climate scammer people are sort of saying, oh, we need to do net zero, blah, 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 whatever. Meanwhile, India and China are just going full steam ahead with, you know, uh, like coal and gas plants and all this other stuff. So ultimately, it's like shooting yourself in the foot if you try to go for these net zero policies. Look at what happened in Germany. Look at what's happened in Australia even. In Australia, the climate, you know, sort of wind and solar garbage basically pushed the cost of electricity up a lot and so that basically chased away industry industrial uses in australia and i think you're going to see similar in germany because they're a bunch of crazy people and they're chasing away the car manufacturing industry so i think you know yes there's bad news in terms of people who have sadly fallen for the communist and status propaganda but there is also good news in that we can we can fix this by adopting hard money and creating a very high cost for those people and forcing that cost to be borne by the people who choose that, whereas those of us who choose, you know, free market money can opt out of that system. Yeah, and benefit. Uh, I, I don't want to redirect the conversation. Go, go for it, Daniel. I'm sure you have some thoughts after all this. Yeah, no, I mean, everything Stefan just said, and uh, and more of it. You know, as soon as we, as soon as we move on to a um, 
a monetary standard where it cannot be controlled uh, by anyone for their own gain or for their own political um, reasons, we're all in a better spot. It is so simple. It really is. As soon as we can move on to a medium exchange that cannot debate, cannot be debated on a whim uh, by you know a, a small group of people in a room, then the better humanity is going to be. And I, I don't know how else to make it more no. easy <laughs> no, for people to. Yeah. You're, you're obviously right. It's it's what what concerns me here is just to you know. All bad cop to your guys, good cop, because I think you're obviously correct, and I think that those that are, uh, you know, adopters to Bitcoin at this point will will benefit tremendously. But you have the masses of young men in this country that that have not been, uh, you know, orange pilled that are are still dealing with this propagandistic push and have been convinced of it, and and ultimately many of them are on psychotropic, you know, medications. Uh, many of them have never had a relationship with a woman, uh, even if they're heterosexual, like they just like they're like they're broken. They're really deeply broken people. And, and it's not a handful. It's millions. <laughs> and just based off of histor the historical record, you know, revolutions and, uh, you know, revolutions of the good kind don't come from those types of people. <laughs> revolutions of the very very bad kind come from those types of people the people that that see though like the haves versus the have-nots mentality like if they see that bitcoiners are all of a sudden the ones that are driving the nicest cars even though you know if we if we win uh there'll be cars if they win there'll be no cars so we'll we'll have to all take public transportation most likely um <clears throat> but my point is you know the 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 jealousy um you know politics that that they they function off of at this point. <clears throat> it just makes me very nervous for the future. Uh, it, as long as you're under a democratic system in particular, like these people are going to vote for, you know, really horrifying political figures. I mean, we've already seen them. Uh, Trudeau and uh, I, I'm trying to think of the, uh, what's the New Zealand lady? Uh, Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, yeah Ardern. Uh, you know, Gavin Newsom. Uh, the list the list goes on and on gretchen whitmer like there is some fucking monstrous political figures and they have not gone away for the most part i mean ardern appears to have but uh she was <laughs> she was once again at some sort of climate initiative just last week in new york so it's like these these people as long as they're functioning in you know under the direction of klaus or whoever the fuck is giving them their marching orders they don't seem to be going away and they seem to have uh you know if not uh, steady. Some of them have really blooming, uh, you know, political support behind them. And, you know, Gavin Newsom is being floated regularly as a potential replacement for Joe Biden, even though Newsom has said he's not going to do it. I still don't believe him. I still think this motherfucker is just waiting for, for, you know, he wants to frame it like, oh, Biden had to step down because his health is, is failing him. I, I, you know, I didn't want to do it, but I'm going to step up, you know, like here, here we go. And as, as a California refugee, just let me double down for you guys if you're not familiar with this dude he is a horrifying human being like if you've ever seen american psycho like he he's the type of dude that would like stare at himself in the mirror after he's you know com committed a grievous crime and just like have some sort of talk with himself he's a horrifying horrifying human being and he's as corrupt as it gets um he would do anything for power 
And I, I'm very concerned that, you know, these types of people, these these kids that are, um, you know, rudderless and and totally, totally propagandized are going to create an environment, you know, both politically and economically that is so untenable that it ends up in a, you know, kind of a cultural Marxist revolution or a communist, uh, you know, revolution full blown. It's it's very concerning. I don't know. Any thoughts? Look, I mean, certainly there's a lot of challenges, I think. As I, you know, I'm not an American, but I visit for conferences and things here and there. But as I see it, it seems that, yeah, there's a lot of issues around drugs. A lot of people who are so sort many. of becoming docile and, and checking out. And, you you know, I remember even in, the, in recent years, I was like going to a petrol station to pick up some groceries next to the hotel. And like the guy was offering me a job, right? Like that's how desperate they were to hire because they couldn't hire people to just be the you know the yeah, cashier at the, at the service station at the petrol station kids don't work anymore it's it's unbelievable like I, I don't know how the fuck they're living but like I worked I worked a dozen you know shit jobs when I was from the time I was 15 up until the time I was you know 24 you know I was working terrible jobs but it's just like that's that was the process you know but now now they're doing like fight for 15 and shit like that where like these kids that aren't even close to worth that like even though that's nothing but they're still not worth that because they're basically worth almost nothing um in terms of skill set like that is now viewed as you know slavery or something it's like no mm -hmm. you're you're gaining a skill set it's like a it's like a low paid apprenticeship essentially you're you're figuring out how to provide value to the world and until you do that you don't deserve to be paid a living wage whatever that is um a it's, direct it's, result of the minimum wage laws yeah uh, yeah, no, it's certainly a huge part of that. But it, it's also it's also like many of them don't even want to work. And and many mm -hmm. of them, you know, now, but then on the flip side of that, they advocate for UBI, you know, of course, why wouldn't they? Sure. Uh, they have no they have no concept of the value of a, of a dollar uh, or the value of money. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, crazy. what's really funny. There was, um, you might have seen this video. It was like a short clip. And um, the guy was sort of going and there were, I think it was a climate protest or whatever. And they were talking up to these these young guys, and they were like, "Oh, we really need to end farming." You know, this is the kind of thinking they're like. They just think food just you know magically appears in the convenience store, and it's just there, and it's replenished, and it'll always be replenished. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. is the level of thinking for some of these young individuals, unfortunately. Decoolization, um, de or however you pronounce it. I mean, this is <laughs> we've seen this shit before. Like people go after farmers. It's happening right now in South Africa too. It's like. This is not this is not sustainable. You know, they it's the the terrible irony of it. They talk about sustainable development goals. And it's like everything they're advocating for is the opposite of sustainability. You can't get away from farming. We have over 7 fucking billion people on the planet. You want to you want to start to take away the best fertilizers? You want to start to take away farmland? What are you doing? You're going to starve people. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Go on, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 crazy, and um, ah, the, the the level of um, right, okay. So these people again, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, what do they want to stop? They want to stop brutal factory farming, and they want to stop like um, monocropping that is destroying the topsoil. Like, yeah, I'm on board. We definitely need to stop that stuff. But they don't see they they just blanket that with all kinds of farming and what has actually um incentivized that kind of farming in the first place well the governments and the regulators 
the people that put the policies in place to to make it almost impossible for you to farm in a sustainable manner because go big or go home right when that that yep. came out in 72 73 i think surprisingly enough what the fuck happened in 1971 just a few years after we come <laughs> off the gold standard this all gets linked back and you, you know for, for your listeners and viewers that have not gone to see that website wtf happened in 1971 all the graphs are there it's a brilliant resource for for people that are trying to put their finger on what has gone wrong over the last 50 to 60 years like why are we in this position why has uh, an industry such as aviation gone backwards? How did we get to how did we get to flying people across the Atlantic Ocean at the speed of sound to not? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. You yeah, can well, track and, and... all of this stuff back to you know that auspicious date when they they depegged um, the the dollar to um, to gold and rug pulled the rest of the world. And here we are. It's a direct, direct effect of screwing around with the money. And, and to go back, like, I don't know, three or four conversations earlier when we were talking about, you know, who's behind this and are they going to print money and how are they going to fix it? Well, over the last, I don't know, maybe 18 months or two years, two banks, two banks have in a, um, a huge dossier about this thick to the Federal Reserve to be given and granted, um, you know, a license to operate in the United States. One was called Narrow Bank and one was called Custodia Bank. And these banks wanted to come in like either 100 or 110% fully backed, collateralized, total reserves. You'd think that'd be rubber stamped, right? No, neither of them. Yeah. Why? Because they've got the system, the money, the, the, the system isn't broken. The financial system isn't broken. It's working exactly as it was designed. The education system is not broken. It's working exactly as it was designed. The medical system is not broken. The AMA, the American Medical Association, set up in the 1930s by, yeah, you know who, <laughs> Rockefeller and co. That is working as designed. All of this yeah. stuff is working as designed. And that's when we were talking about how dark it gets when you realize all of this stuff right. and how we've been played and how we've been controlled and how we've been aid to you know to to think in certain ways and that's why you're seeing the these climate people today they have no they're just parroting what they're being told yeah. uh, by these paid scientists uh, right. you know it's and again science isn't broken just follow it because it's working yeah. perfectly as designed. <laughs> I, I, I love I love that framing. You're right. It, if you if you understand how it was actually initially set up, it's not broken. <laughs> this is actually it's how it's supposed to function. But but from our vantage point, it, it is terribly broken because it's producing um, you know human misery. Whereas all of these industries are supposed to be helping with that. It's supposed to be helping with longevity yeah. and all these things. It's it's terrible. Something I might just add to that, uh, you know, to, kind of to your question just before around how there's these disillusioned people. I think part of it is if we want to be able to promote liberty, we have to be able to pr provide a vision that's compelling to people. And that's where I think Bitcoin and this kind of idea of the bright orange future, I think that's something we, we should also try to push. Like this idea that, hey, hey, you, we, we can all be richer. We can all, it's a positive sum game, right? When we can all trade and we can have like this... Yep 
beneficial discipline of a hard money of Bitcoin. I think that's one potential answer. Now, okay, it's not gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna fix things tomorrow, but it is still, in my view, the only and the fastest pathway to liberty is to sort of get on the Bitcoin standard. And that's why for me, I get a little frustrated with libertarians who haven't sort of come onto the Bitcoin bandwagon per se, because I think a lot of them, you know, maybe they've, they're focused on other things. Maybe they're, they're trying to like, maybe they're trying to get the presidential campaign thing happening, or maybe they're just kind of, they've got their own little issue, whether it's drug issues or other some other issue that they right. are focused on. But I, I really think if you sort of go down to the money and sort of take that power of money away from the state, that's actually going to bring about a more libertarian world. Maybe it won't be the perfect libertarian world, but it'll be like at least a lot closer. And it's not going to happen tomorrow. It might be decades, but I still think that's the fastest pathway. And so if if we want liberty, we've got to focus on that. I think think that, you know, even amongst libertarians, there's higher and lower time preference people, you know? Um, And I think that the the lower time preference folks are the ones that are, are much more... Uh, you know, in the in the Bitcoin camp already. And I, I completely agree with your assessment that that from my experience, the libertarians that have gone down the Bitcoin route, uh, and especially those obviously that, that have acquired some, uh, the earlier, the better, of course, uh, they they have they tend to be the more optimistic amongst us, you know, they tend to see a pathway. Uh, many others, you know, just see hopelessness. And I'm, I'm somewhere in between, <clears throat> I, I think, primarily because you know, I have a national audience and I like to talk about a variety of topics. And, and what I see is like, yes, this is a great pathway for those that, that are aware that see it, you know, like, and, and, and God bless them. I'm still, you know, we live in a society. <laughs> I hate even saying that sentence, but, um, you know, we're, we're surrounded by people that are totally in the dark about it and, and ultimately couldn't be different from us, you know, ideologically, philosophically, politically, they're just, and, and they have, and they vote (laughs) and they're, and they're going to have a lot of say. And like, like, you know, I'm, I'm a drug legalization advocate, but it doesn't change the fact that like San Francisco and, and my hometown of San Diego to a certain extent and LA, certainly like basically all of the major cities in California have been overran by drug addicted homeless people. And it's, uh, it's like, yeah, my life was going great. It doesn't change the fact that like my life ended up being interfered with because of the the culture, the political environment, the, the you know the lack of uh, enforcement of of what was many many of these people were violent criminals too. You know, I had my car broken into, I had things stolen from me. It's like uh, in San Francisco, you can't get you know shoplifters won't be prosecuted. It's like there's no property rights anymore in California to a large extent, and and like you. You can only go along to get along so long before you have to get the fuck out of there. And that's what I did. I moved to Florida. But uh, I'm curious, has, have you guys experienced a huge uptick in homelessness and drug addiction in, as you've traveled around? I, I, think, I think you may have you know, a, a little bit of a slanted view because when you do travel around the world, you probably go to Bitcoin uh, stuff and you, you meet a lot of people that probably have their shit together. Um, but I'm just curious, have you seen an uptick? Uh, you know, is it a global phenomenon or is this you know, primarily an American one? I, I've seen an uptick, you know, when, when we visit these cities, um, we spend, you know, we, we don't just fly in and fly out for the conference. We, we spend some time there and, you know, we, we want to see the sites. We want to, we, we love to travel. So we want to go and dip sure. in and out of the culture and for sure. I mean, well, look what's going on here in, in, uh, in Europe, uh, immigration, um, from war torn countries, whether, you know, there's a, a full on war 
obviously going on in Ukraine, which doesn't get covered in the mainstream media. So is it a war? Is it a, is it not a war? Who knows? But you get a lot of uh, Ukrainian Over 100,000 people have died, so it's definitely a war, man. Right. But yeah, I, I understand. But why Ukrainian. is it not being covered? It, it's yeah, just it's insane. It, it's crazy. But then you, you get the, the Ukrainian um, families that are, um, you know, are fleeing, and they will come to countries such as uh, Germany, France, the UK, and then um, maybe um, a lot of uh, uh, Africans that are fleeing, you know, fix in, in their own countries. And um, this is in Syria as well and this is causing uh a lot of upset in the cities because cities are where these people head to mm. because that's where you know the football is and the money is and that the only thing they can do is is pretty much beg on the streets or wash the windows uh, at the uh, at, at the stoplights you know and this is going on in in Paris in Lyon in uh, in Berlin in Munich in London um yeah it's uh it's a mess I don't know what, um, what, what you're seeing where, where you are, Stefan. Well, maybe I'm in a bit of a different situation just because I'm in Dubai, in the UAE, so it's kind of very strictly controlled, let's say. So in that sense, um, they sort of control things a bit more. There's been a lot, of, obviously, there's been a lot of people moving to Dubai because, as you said, the Russia-Ukraine war, a lot of uh, people have moved to Dubai recently. They're trying to grow Dubai, so I guess that's something I've seen, at least here, but... I mean, even when I'm hearing, you know, back in Australia, the cost of living aspect, I'm hearing a lot of people are struggling to get uh, able to rent a place because they've sort of stopped mm. the property development. And so it's kind of like this weird dynamic where, you know, people are, there might be like an open house inspection for a rental and there might be like a, a line of 50 people out the door kind of thing, all trying to rent that one place, you know? So even from that perspective, it can be difficult to get a place in, let's say, some of the major cities in Australia. Um, but uh, I bet I bet they're yeah. doing, they're they're probably floating rent control to to solve that. I would imagine. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're hearing yeah, you know in different parts of the world you're hearing people talk about like oh we need to stop the Airbnbs or there's kind of this talk about the Airbnb mm. bust which you might have seen as well. Um, yeah, we I need just it think to that, bust. Yeah. We need these yeah. fucking houses to get back on the market. It's it's <laughs> like, well funny funny you guys should uh, trip over this because um, just anecdotal. Um, kind of uh, conversations I had with a few friends back in the UK in the last uh, two or three weeks. Um, during COVID, like the early, early, early days when they locked everybody down um, to try and mask the, the pain that was coming to the economy, the government decided to lift stamp duty. We call it stamp duty. I don't know if you have that kind of thing in the US or so when, when you sell a uh, or buy a property, there's a stamp duty that you have to pay to, you know, who. Uh, and it was it's a lot of cash, right? So they said, well, you know what? No stamp duty on uh, any house sales for the next 18 months, whatever. So that absolutely uh, set the um, a market pace. And Interesting. everybody was buying and selling their houses, um, going crazy. Now, unbeknownst, I think, probably to a lot of people who listen to your show, Clint, it, you can't get 30-year fixed-rate mortgages in the UK. Like the, mm -hmm. the longest fixed-rate mortgage you're going to get is probably about five years on average. Interesting. Three to five years. So all of those people that were buying a house outside of means just because there was no stamp duty uh, back in 2020, all of these mortgages are going to be up for renegotiation 
in the next 18 months or so. And interest rates, as we all know, have only gone away. So your monthly payment might be going from 1,000 to 1,500 pounds per month to three and a half to 4,000 pounds per month. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck, right? dude. I mean, so, the, so you're going to have a flood of inventory hit the market almost certainly. Uh, it would seem that way. And that, I mean, what's that going to do? What are the ripple effects uh, throughout Europe? I don't know. Um, yeah, no, Europe's glad... a little bit more like the US. You can get 20 to 25 year fixed rate mortgage. So the, the same thing is not applying to many European countries. But of course, the UK, what happens there does have a ripple effect because there are a lot of people there that buy houses in you know neighboring countries in, uh, in on the mainland. Uh, Stefan, out of curiosity, is how is uh, you know Dubai and how's it how's the economy? You know the fact that uh, I'm sure you're getting, as you said, you have some of the the war torn folks that are immigrating there. Are is there enough economic uh, growth that these people are able to find opportunities? So I think what we saw is a lot of high net worth people moving here. So that if they already were able to sell up where they were and come here, and it's not just Russia, it could be like Chinese high net worth people coming here. Sure. Um, and so Dubai has gone through a big rise in property prices recently. So I would say over the last year or two, it's not crazy to see 30 to 40% rise in property prices and even at the rental level to see price rises in that, in that range. So yeah. it's gone up a lot. Um, that's, that's been so, the entire American real estate market, just so you know. Right, <laughs> like, right. Through, well, through the, through the teeth of a recession and, and the entire real estate market has gone up 30 to 40% nationwide. It's fucking right. catastrophic. So maybe it's a global phenomenon, you know? It's, and that's yeah. pretty rough for people who aren't able to set their own, you know, if they don't own their own business or they're not able to get raises from their employer. Yeah, or if they didn't own any pressure. real estate prior yeah. to that bull run. Yeah, it's right. terrible for them. So Clint, yeah. I was having a conversation with a guy called Jim Kreider the other day who's a financial advisor and has been for many years and um, was telling me that the during uh, the lockdowns, there was a, a freeze on student debt repayments. Is that correct in the US? There was a freeze, not just on that, but also on you know mortgage payments, rent payments. Yeah, they froze everything. Okay. Now he was saying that this freeze on, on the student debt repayments specifically is rolling off in about two or three weeks time. Correct. Holy shit, man. Like, the, so <laughs> and when you look at, oh my God. So when you look at credit card debt, like personal debt, that's just hockey sticked over the last two or three years um, at the household level, at the personal uh, level. And <laughs> yeah, let's say, I don't know how much you pay back, 400, 500 bucks a month or something over the next God knows how many years. All of a sudden that was stopped. You didn't have to pay that back. So that feels like money in your pocket. Right. You're getting the universal basic income. How long did they do that for? Sending out checks for about eighteen hundred dollars, right? Uh, yeah. Well, the, no, they they did that very briefly. I mean, that was like a, right. a one-time thing. I think it was fourteen hundred, eighteen. I don't even know. I don't think I got it because I was I made too much money. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I think the eighteen hundred steamy check was like a one-off, and then they did another round of maybe one-off there. But they're still, you know, obviously a lot of people are living on credit. I think that's the ultimate yeah. problem, right? Like a lot of people are living beyond their means and mm -hmm. very few people are willing to tell them the hard message of, hey, actually, you're living too large. You need to 
live less. And yeah. obviously, that's a very unpopular message to give people. So a, who's going to be the one to tell them? Starter, yeah. I mean, it really is. Like Ron Ron Paul's like the last national figure that was willing to say hard truths like that. So it's not surprising that that you know you have an entire generation of kids that that think that that's just that's an absurdity. Why why would I yeah. have to uh, cut back on look anything? At, look at the mindset that creates, right? Oh, times are hard. Never mind. They freeze my debt and money falls from the sky. Exactly. It bre- it breaks you in terms of being a resilient human being too, because like you're no, you're no longer able to plan and prepare for a rainy day. You know, you don't even think like that. It's just like, well, if if I get laid off, I get unemployment insurance. If the if there's a fucking pandemic and they lock me in my house, I'm gonna get paid for that. Um, it's, it's totally crippling and, and it's, it was a global phenomenon. Like it crippled an entire generation and just think about the young people. Like we're, we're all older. So like we've actually lived before the insanity of the past three years. We got to, got to see what like a somewhat functioning civilization looked like the young people that were in high school when this struck think this is what fucking life is. They think that this is just like, this is what happens and it's just not reality like that's not at all how it's supposed to be this is totally counter to how a functioning society goes and i just don't know how we recover from it but uh, obviously bitcoin is a huge part of the answer i wanted to uh, i've already held you guys for over an hour i wanted to ask you guys because you do travel around a lot um as you know jethro put together this this interview with the three of us and i'm grateful that he did it's been a great one uh but he's he's moved to el salvador uh you know that I, I haven't been there, but I, I have read and, you know, watched enough video uh, about it to see that, you know, the leader there has done an incredible job, Bukele, in, in terms of, like, getting rid of the, the cartels or, or, you know, imprisoning a ton of them uh, and and also diversifying the central bank into Bitcoin. Uh, you know, Stefan, uh, in Dubai, I'm, I'm curious, like, or, like where where is the, the Hong Kong of Bitcoin at this, at this junction? <laughs> well, look, I think it's fair to say, look, El Salvador has a lot going for it. Um, it's funny that, uh, I, obviously, I'm also bullish on Dubai and the UAE, uh, maybe parts of Asia as well. But ultimately, you have to find what works for you and for your family. But I will say, I've visited El Salvador twice now. Um, they really brought the crime down, and that really changed things. Like genuinely, people used to live in fear that they would be shot if they were, you know, going out at night or, you know, the way, even the architecture and the way the buildings were, was built in a much more closed off way historically when it was quote unquote, the murder capital. Now they are building a lot more and you can see even like the restaurants and things have like clear glass windows, like it's just changing. So I think it's a genuine uh, shift that's being made there. And what's funny is that some of the interests that kind of promote you know democracy and so on they are the ones very quick to criticize the so-called dictator bukele or you know other regimes around the world when really maybe it is actually simple about you know stopping crime like if they literally just stop the crime and lock these people up and let the other free people actually go about their business that actually allows people to go about their business and build wealth and do all these things that we want them to do right to think for the long term and you look at you know, I think a lot of people have this weird conception of like, oh, the Western countries are safe and the other ones are not. What's funny is that's starting to flip. So as an example, the safest countries on earth, if you look at the murder rate as an example, it's countries like Bahrain, Qatar, UAE, um, maybe uh, Singapore, uh, maybe Switzerland, right? And their murder rate is something like 0.5 per 100,000 or something like that. And let's say the US murder rate is like six 
per 100,000, right? Now, in, of course, the US is big. There's parts that have a high murder rate and parts that have a low rate. Um, but, you know, the worst places in the world, let's say, from a murder rate perspective, is like South Africa. I've got like 40 per 100,000 murder rate, homicide rate. So, you know, it just, it's, it just shows you that maybe there's more to it. And actually, it's more about actually providing a safe place. Of course, you know, the ideal case for me would be privatize everything, private police, all that, etc. But, you know, in the world we're in, if they can at least have a low crime rate and let people, you know, do business and live their lives, maybe that's that's worth something. It counts for something. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Having lived in California, I, I would take Bukele over Newsom <laughs> for sure. Uh, it may not. It may not be the perfect libertarian answer, uh, but if I had to choose between one, it's not a. It's not a tough choice. Uh, Daniel, any any thoughts on that? Uh, I've I've yet to visit, unfortunately, so I can't really. Um, okay. too much firsthand, but watching very closely, interested uh, to, to see what plays out um, over, you know, time will tell, right? And um, yeah, there, there, there's still some questions over Bukele and, and how uh, um, constitutional the idea of extending his presidency is. So there's there's questions over that, and um, it's for your listeners that uh, probably have uh, very little trust in political figures. Um, it's an interesting case study to watch for for sure. Um, and okay, there was yeah. talk in the uh, in the Bitcoin community, you know, when he announced that Bitcoin was going to become legal tender. There was a there was a huge fight in the Bitcoin community over like, well, that's communism. Like that, you know, we we should. You, you, people outsiders looking in will probably think, look, look at those Bitcoiners; they're all rejoicing. No, like that that that's like, hang on, there's a conversation that needs to be happened here because legal tender laws are, you know, that they're aggressive, they're oppressive. This um, mm. this this shouldn't be the way that Bitcoin uh, should be adopted. We need to have a conversation about this. Is a um, a bottom up movement. This is uh, you know a, a grassroots mm. movement, not a top down you now have to accept bitcoin at your store and we're going to airdrop you 30 dollars worth of bitcoin each into a state designed and run wallet so yeah it's it's not all roses and yeah. bitcoiners are they're being attracted there i want to go uh, i really want to go and, and visit and see what's going on and i think there's a lot of great things going on there but of you know, don't don't trust verify, right, Stefan? Yeah, the, uh, and uh, look, I, yeah, I want I want to add something here as well. Like certainly, there is that libertarian concern. It, this idea of forced tender—that's certainly wrong. Um, I will say, from what I understand in El Salvador, they weren't really enforcing it. So you know, but that said, they shouldn't have you know it shouldn't have happened in that way. But nevertheless, um, you know, there are I certainly recognize there's that concern from a libertarian perspective. And certainly people I've spoken to who are doing kind of digital nomad, flag theory, sovereign individual sort of stuff, some of them are more focused on other parts of LATAM, right? Because maybe for them, even though they're a Bitcoiner, they're not necessarily going to stay in El Salvador. Maybe they're doing something with Panama or Paraguay or Mexico, or things like that. Like they're looking at other countries as well. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to go and necessarily go live in El Salvador, that you can find other countries that sort of work for you uh, and... Yeah, certainly it's important to focus on the bottom up, right? Because that's really what matters the most. And, uh, you know, getting more uh, individuals and businesses to actually support and use Bitcoin, hodl Bitcoin, 
and that to me is the main goal. Um, so, you know, I'd say that that's kind of the main sort of focus, let's say yeah, for Bitcoin. And, and, and learning and learning from, you know, each other, right, Clint, um, uh, I know you've got a varied audience. Not everybody here is, uh, stacking Bitcoin, you know, maybe they're into the gold, silver guns, um, you know, wh whatever it's, uh, it's all good. It's better than you know, stacks of fiat currency. That's for sure. <laughs> But le learning from each other is is key uh, because we're coming at this from from different angles and we all have the same goal in mind is just more personal freedom and uh, autonomy over how we live our lives and how we interact with our family and the, you know the uh, the surroundings uh, in which we base ourselves. Um, Stefan and I, uh, we were at a conference last year where we got to meet a lot of people from like the freedom movement, uh, you know, seasteaders and people like that, um, people that are building intentional living communities. And it's really interesting to, to speak to those people, especially on the, uh, the deeper side of things of like, um, you know, what are the legalities of a big meme in the, in the Bitcoin space is, well, Stefan signs off with every show, you know, see you in the Citadels, right? So <laughs> a big yeah. meme is where can we just go and be left alone and live how we want to live? You know, we can build our own city. And yeah. the city's foundation was was born out of the book by uh, Titus Gable, Free, uh, Free Private Cities. And they put on a conference each year um, in Prague. This is the second year, actually. And uh, Stefan and I were there last year. I'm going back this year. Unfortunately, he's going to be in India and in another conference. So uh, it, it's great to go and learn from these um, from these other people. So I would just urge anyone uh, listening, watching that hasn't scratched the surface yet of Bitcoin. You know, uh, my DMs are open. Stefan's are as well. Uh, there's a lot of craziness in the media about how uh, toxic um we are and how unfriendly we are uh, that's uh, complete nonsense and uh, i know you've had a lot of bitcoiners on as well so this isn't you know the first rodeo for many people so thank you for letting us come on and 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 discuss these ideas and um and of give course, bitcoin a, another another platform to be aired yeah well i've i mean it's <laughs> it's funny because you know i've had on probably 15 you know bitcoiners and and i still get absolutely pilloried for not talking about bitcoin enough <laughs> it's like it's like motherfucker how many do i gotta do uh you know i like i i but i love i love the passion i honestly do like it like it doesn't it doesn't really rub me the wrong way because i understand that these are most of these people are are people that were deep down the black pill route and then they found hope and they found mm -hmm. they found a pathway and like once you have seen the darkness and then you find a pathway you want to lead if you're a good person you want to lead people out of the darkness so like mm. i understand i understand the heart behind it and it doesn't it doesn't really bother me i just wish that people would be like a little bit understanding that like you need to have a funnel you have to have you have to have people that are just like tuning in because i talk about american politics or you know how corrupt and filled with shit joe biden is and then they you know because they become a fan of my takes there then they might listen to this episode and start to think on a different level so it's like you have to you have to meet people where they're at and if you have a national audience you know talking about bitcoin all the time will probably only bring in bitcoiners like i'm but i'm bringing in people that are just like sick to death 
of the political system and how crazy everything is and going, what are the answers? And I'm like, well, hey, now that you're here, I have some. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the, the way I and, view it. Um, and just on that, just on that black pill point, um, you know, I, I want people to know that, uh, well, just recently I released an episode with, uh, Eric Kaysen, Stefan's, um, very familiar with Eric's work. He's just released a book called, uh, Crypto Sovereignty. And we were just chatting about his, um, his rabbit hole story. Like, you know, how did you discover Bitcoin? And he had that black pill moment, man. He had a handful of pills. He was ready to take them. He was going to check out. He was done because he'd seen how dark this was. Like this whole political, he had been to a, um, uh, an Occupy rally. Uh, I can't remember which city, so I, I won't even guess. But ended up getting beaten over the head by a police officer. And to him, it's like, what's the point of living in this world? You know, you go to a peaceful rally, see that the, everything that's wrong with the system and the people that are there hired to, to keep you safe, in air quotes, to end up beating you over the head because of, you, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Um, so for those people that, that are in that place, that see the darkness, I, you know, please just, just pick up one Bitcoin book, just, just that, just, yep. just one podcast, just one other YouTube video and, and just start your journey because when you turn your head upside down or rewire your brain, um, there is nothing but hope and you, it will improve your life. And you can then go and work on those other aspects of freedom that you're trying to implement for yourself. Once you have freedom money, everything else becomes a lot easier. Uh, anyway, that's my little, um, that's my little closer. Uh, I'll oh, send it beautiful. over to Stefan. No, well, before before Stefan goes, I, I I wanted to ask you guys because you travel around and you interact with so many of the you know cutting edge thinkers, including yourselves, obviously in this in this environment. Um, what has been the over the past say six to twelve months? What has been the most innovative u utilization for Bitcoin that you guys have heard about? Whether whether or not it has been you know, realized or is still in the theoretical phase? I'm curious. Uh, let's start with Stefan. So something that's become a lot popular, a lot more popular in recent, you know, in that recent, in that time is Nostra. It's a decentralized, hmm. think of it like a decentralized social media, but it's actually a lot more than that. But Bitcoin is interesting because it allows a monetization on that that is very different to the monetization that exists today in typical social media. So that's probably an interesting monetization there because people can zap each other for an individual post and they're using Bitcoin's lightning network. So for people who don't know that, basically it's a way to send Bitcoin really quickly and you know, usually very cheaply. And so that has been probably an interesting monetization and we'll see, obviously it's still very early days with Nostra, but I think that is an interesting example. Um, but more broadly, I'm more focused on this idea of growing the, the amount of people who are hodling Bitcoin, right? Like hodling means hold some Bitcoin. Uh, I think that still remains the most important use. If there was one use that we should think about with Bitcoin, it's holding for the long term. Like think of it like a long term savings. It's not get rich quick, but it's like, you know, if you save that for a minimum of five years, you're, that, that is going to preserve purchasing power and usually grow a little, grow over that time. So I think that's probably the key sort of use. And the interesting thing that's happened just recently is that even at an, at an accounting level, there were businesses who had to previously in America who would have had to do a write down if the price of Bitcoin went down. Recently, that's changed. So now they actually 
have a change in the accounting standard for them. And so that means they, if you are a business owner, it might actually make sense for you to hold some Bitcoin and use it, uh, either holding some or using it in, in terms of paying your employees and things like this. So that way you have a bit more resilience if, let's say, SVB or some bank shutdown, close down happens, you are still able to operate. So I'd say that's kind of an interest. Those are a few interesting uses. Great. Daniel, yeah, anything else? And for me, um, I've seen the utility of Bitcoin, um, you know, increase. Uh, more merchants are adopting Bitcoin payments now. It's becoming um, easier to uh, spend Bitcoin. And I, I agree with, with Stefan as well. Holding is important, especially if you're coming into this, um, you know, now, right? Uh, just stack as much as you can, set up your dollar cost average, try and ride that out for four to five years. This is not a get quick scheme. This is an earn your freedom deliberately scheme, right? Be, <laughs> right, be right. militant, cut, cut all of that um, extra chaff out of your life, um, put as much as you can per week or per day even uh, in, into Bitcoin and, and hold that and take self of it take it off the exchange or off the app that you're using to buy you know do that on um on at least a buy you know maybe bi-monthly basis just make sure you are taking control of it onto your hardware wallet signing device for mr levera and uh <laughs> uh you, you know hold it um then there's this other wave of people that have been in the bitcoin rabbit hole for perhaps four five six seven years they don't have um, the, the, the fiat currency coming in so much because they've changed their lives already. They might be doing the nomadic um, flag theory kind of life. Uh, or like myself, um, you know, my show is supported with Bitcoin payments only. So I need uh, to use it as a tool, as a medium of exchange. And if you read, uh, there's a great article. Everyone, yeah, check this one out. Nick Sabo shelling out. He goes through the stages of uh, the monetization of um uh, an asset and it starts with a collectible. So hodl, if you're here, hodl, like if you're new, it's a, it's a collectible, then it becomes a store of value and then it becomes a, uh, a medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we're seeing is a certain cohort of Bitcoiners are now looking to, to Bitcoin as their medium of exchange. And as that picks up speed, that's what picks up adoption and that's what picks up utility and that's what picks up the public kind of uh, opinion of it. And um, we know money is the most sellable good. And when people like the zombies that we've been talking about earlier, we still have to believe in the human endeavor and have a faith in humanity that they will see, oh, wait, ah, uh, that's something I need to get. How do I get it? Well, I have to add value to someone. And if I add value to someone, then I can... Uh, charge them in Bitcoin for the value that I've added. And this is where society starts reshaping itself. So not happening overnight, guys. It's not yeah. all about bright orange Lambos, I am afraid. That's, uh, <laughs> that's not what we're here for. You, you, can, you, can pitch, you can pick up a pitchfork or you can pick up some Bitcoin. Uh, you, right. you, choose, you choose what you're interested in. I, no, I, I think those are, are all great um, you know, opt optimistic notes for us to wrap on. And I appreciate you guys' time. This conversation, as as always, when I talk to Bitcoiners, is um, you know I I'm so immersed in the negativity of the day to day news cycle. It's always a, a blessing to be able to talk to people that are are you know focused on the the growth out of this as opposed to weathering the storm. Uh, so I appreciate your time, uh, Stefan. Go ahead and tell people where they can follow you. 
Yeah, so people can find me at stefanlevera.com and uh, I also work at swan.com. So that's an easy place for people to buy Bitcoin and Swan actually makes it easy to automatically buy and to automatically withdraw to your own self-custody. So that's uh, where people can find us online. Love it. Daniel? Yeah, come um, come hit me up on Twitter at PrinceySov, which stands for store of value. Might have to change that to MOE soon. And uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active there. Uh, the, the, the podcast is once bitten. If you, if anybody's interested, uh, like Stefan, uh, it's a Bitcoin only focused, uh, podcast, but that doesn't mean that we don't talk about like the big ideas. It just means we do not talk about the shit coins and the altcoins and all of that <laughs> right. other DeFi, TradFi, BS, uh, that those, those folks are not welcome. Um, we want the intellectually stimulating conversations that, um, and that could link to, to health people that are thinking about health differently. Uh, I love going down those rabbit holes, uh, macroeconomics, obviously a lot of that, a lot of like this conversation. So, um, sure. yeah, happy I, to, I just, uh, happy to, happy to interact with anyone in DMS. Love it. Um, yeah, I just started a show with Luke Rakowski. Uh, it's currently on his, we are change channel and he is very much in the, uh, you know, self-improvement health focusing on health you know kind of guru lifestyle and um you know i i don't talk about that too much on my show but i think we'll be doing it more over on that channel so for those that that want to hear more about uh you know personal development and things like that i think we'll be covering that more plus of you know people that have sex with barack obama I, you know we got to cover everything so that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we do over there uh, I'll drop you. I'll drop you a book. A book recommendation. Um, I, I bet nobody's even heard of it. Red Symphony. Okay, I'll check it out. It's very, very small book. Uh, it's written by um, Dr. Jay Landowski, L-A-N-D-O-W-S-K-I, and it is a transcript of. So it's not. It's not. It's not fiction. It's just fact. It's a transcript of a conversation that took place in 1938. Uh, between a Russian KGB agent and uh, the uh, the ambassador, the Russian ambassador to France at the time, right before the start of the World War, Second World War, excuse me. Um, wow, they kind of merge into one. So anyway, go pick it up. Yeah, go I'll pick it up. Uh, and Red and Symphony. The, and and since uh, normally when I have Bitcoiners on. Uh, I end up having more Bitcoin listeners tune in. So I'll remind you guys that uh, Liberty Lockdown is available on the Fountain app. If you guys want to get paid sets and pay me sets for listening, I appreciate uh, you guys tuning in over there. Uh, got a couple million sets over the, you know, over the past year, just just because I put my show on there. So uh, for any podcasters out there, I would also encourage you to add your show over there. I haven't really promoted it heavily. It's just been, you know, Bitcoiners that appreciate what I'm doing that have uh, chosen to support me and you know, found, found money and real money. How about that? It, there's real money out there. It's pretty cool. It's money you control. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you guys for the time. And thank you guys for tuning in once again. If you'd like to uh, support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com or you can sign up to become a subscriber over on X. I got about five slots left. I almost had a hundred, uh, you know, paying subscribers to my Twitter ramblings. I appreciate you guys for doing that. And uh, last but not least, if you want to pick up a shirt, go to toplobster.com. Please hit the like button, subscribe, leave a comment, and uh, yeah, share it around. We'll see you guys soon. Peace. See you, Clint. Thank you. Bye.
Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?